Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm doing very, very well, Dan. And it's uh, it's great to see you, to see our guest. Um, yes. And I'm looking forward to, uh, to a discussion of, um, what's the name of this one? Um, the Good Father. The God... The good feathers, yeah. The God feather. The Godfather. Yes, yeah. we're talking All about right. the Godfather this week. The, 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 we are indeed. It's directed by, and let me just check my notes here. Um, Fran- this is Frankis? a great bit. <laughs> Fran- Francis Ford Coppola. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I am naturally incredibly nervous about this because this is arguably one of the great American movies, one of the rare movies that has positioned itself at the top of the 250, a legitimate claim to being, if not the greatest movie of all time, perhaps the greatest American movie of all time. And Andrew is entirely correct to single out. We have a phenomenal guest joining us today. We're we're Uh, doing great so far. Like Darren, there's no real reason for you to be nervous. Like so far as podcast gold and it only gets better from here. I mean, I do understand that this stars the rapper Al Pacino. That's what I understand by looking at this. And Everybody say booty swear. <laughs> <laughs> and listeners, it is our guest, the wonderful Mr. Phil Bagnell. How are you, Phil? It has been a while. It's been far too long. It has. And uh, good to be back. Um, I don't know who this phenomenal guest is that you got coming on, but I'm here to discuss The Godfather and I am terrified. At least I don't think there's much risk of us like being cancelled over like claiming that this is one of the greats or anything like that. It's just it's The Godfather. So, yeah. Well, you're not allowed to say it's the best movie of all time. It's only the second best movie of all time. That's Shawshank. We're it's solidly behind Shawshank. That's what we're aiming for. Second best Sorry. <laughs> Dark Knight Rises, I assume you mean. No, welcome to 2008. Welcome to 2008. When again? Oh, I miss 2008. Well, you know, without the economic recession, but I miss 2008. I I know. Like obviously, there was a lot of turbulent stuff happening with like you know the you know the, the kind of the recession, the, the Iraq War, the end of the Bush presidency, all that sort of stuff was percolating. And I mean, most important of all. The Godfather was toppled from its number one spot at the top of the IMDb 250 when fans of The Dark Knight began furiously downvoting it in an effort to assure The Dark Knight's ascendancy to the number one spot on the list. The result. I know that I know that this is a, a off topic. Just for a second, when we're talking, there about, is no off topic you know, on this podcast. Go. I know um, you think I'd know by now, um, but the fact that no other superhero movie has attempted that kind of campaign since I think Sakes a lot to the Dark Knight. But anyway, we're here to talk about the film that ever so what? briefly topped. I mean you say that, but you did also guest appear on an episode about the official eighth best movie of all time, which is Spider Man No Way Home. So it came I was coerced into that and I still haven't seen it. So you can't pin that on me. You can't um, see it. You, the, yeah. This this one we 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 just released it as a podcast. The 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 Spider Man one. Um so did they we were we're missing the video from that one unfortunately. Our listeners are confu- as confused about that episode as I am, because I really don't see, like, uh, anyway. All right. But first of all, before we jump in, I do want to thank Phil for stepping on at short notice. Um, the reason why we are covering The Godfather is that we are, it is releasing, re-releasing in cinemas again this weekend to mark its 50th anniversary. Francis Ford Coppola 
and Paramount Pictures have gone back. They've newly remastered, newly restored it for 4K. They're releasing the trilogy in cinemas again. And just to be clear, the trilogy consists of The Godfather, The Godfather Part 2, and The Godfather, Mario Puzo's The Godfather, comma, coda, semicolon, The Death of Michael Corleone. Um, the semicolon is an interesting choice there. I would have gone with a colon, but that's just me. Um, that is the movie that is being released in cinemas. Talking to our contacts at Paramount, the wonderful Nula. How are you, Nula? Um, apparently, they're releasing all three simultaneously, but some cinemas are rolling them out weekly. So this week, they'll be screening The Godfather, next week, Part 2, and then the following week, Coda. So you can listen along with us as we take this journey. Looking, oh, look for a tree. Yeah. <laughs> You can join us as kind of as we go through, or you can save up and just listen up at the end because at the end of March they are releasing uh, the 4K remastered Blu-ray edition. We, of these movies. we should underpromise. We should say <laughs> this week we're go- we're going to attempt to talk about The Godfather. Maybe next week uh, yeah. we'll, we'll talk about um, the... part two. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe we'll get to Coda. That's that's the one that's in doubt. Yes, we should, we should. Again, this is all very short notice um, because Paramount only announced this uh, last month. One might suspect to capitalize on the fact that there is nothing in cinemas at the moment and therefore this is a possible easy way to make a great deal of money. February and March being a glut in terms of cinema releases. Well, shock horror. Well, okay. Well, again, this is not a conversation necessarily when we're talking about The Godfather. But yes, because because of when Omicron came out, people didn't know how severe it was. The studios preemptively moved a lot of their good stuff out of the slots. So famously, uh, Sony had been counting on Morbius to sweep in at the end of January, possibly coasting off a Jared Leto supporting actor nomination for House of Gucci and just storming. <laughs> Um, holding the audience's rapturous uh, attention. I haven't seen House of Gucci, but even I'm aware of the memes. I mean, who knew that Mario from Super Mario Brothers was actually a real person? It's a me, a Morbius. It's a me, a, it's a me, a senior Gucci. But yes, yeah, so the studios moved all of their stuff out of January and February and then discovered, obviously, that with Omicron, that it doesn't seem that the numbers are as bad as they are. People are eager to go to the cinema to see stuff, and that's why you're seeing big pushes behind movies that would otherwise be written off like say jackass forever for example and why you are seeing the godfather receiving a arguably a big push just a couple of weeks before the batman arrives to hoover up whatever money is left in in the market so that i is... have more desire to see jackass forever than i do the vast majority of this year's oscar best picture nominees uh, Kurt, mark Kermode was quite kind of complimentary about it he thinks that it's because he's getting old and soft and I like Jackass. I've always had a, a little bit of a soft spot for Jackass. Like, they're just guys who are getting money to do this ludicrous... Nobody else is going to try to do. And people enjoy it. You've, you've so, seen the ludicrous... Beep, 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 beep. From, from, I wouldn't be surprised if that from, was from the new uh, one. Uh, a segment. It's, it's, I wouldn't be surprised if that was a, a segment in You the won't new. believe how ludicrous this beep, 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 beep. is. You're starting to sound like a tabloid headline these days. You won't believe what they did next. Um, yeah, I might. Well, I'm actually might get to watch that at some stage. Um, Does anyone else have anything else they wanted? They wanted to add about about uh, the Godfather. Before, <laughs> before, before we we Thank you forever. for that. And, and yeah, sorry, talking yeah, about yeah. Jackass uh, forever. But yeah. Okay. Okay, it Aaron, is... you may have some editing to do on this. No, this is no. all gold, as Andrew said. It all gets better from here. 
Okay, so before we talk about The Godfather, let's just put the movie in context, because it's a movie that exists almost monolithically within the cinematic landscape. It's a movie that everybody has, you know, either seen or heard of, who can quote lines from, yeah. Uh, yeah, who is familiar with performances from, who can do an impression from the movie without necessarily having seen it. It is ubiquitous in popular culture. Um, it is a cultural phenomenon. However, to kind of fully understand it and maybe kind of like take a look at it, it's important to understand the context from which it emerged. This is, you know, one of the cornerstones of the new Hollywood movement. The new Hollywood movement had arguably kicked off uh, in the late 60s. Most people tend to put it, I believe, and Phil can correct me if I'm wrong here, around Bonnie and Clyde, I think, in 1967 with Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway. That tends to be treated as the launching point. That would seem to be one of the jumping off points, certainly. And... Um, as far as that movement goes, like this is, you know, one of those monoliths, well, in American cinema in general, but in particularly in that period. And it was just such a rich time for a young bunch of filmmakers who were uh, in awe of the films of their youth, but full of a new energy to put their own stamp on things. And when you look at the production of The Godfather and just look at what was happening around it, um, like at the time that this was filming, like you had Bogdanovich was editing the last picture show, and Robert Altman was rapping on McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and things like that. When you see the quality of the work that came out, like recently, I just rewatched Last Picture Show following the death of Bogdanovich. Um, oh no, it's it's gold. It's absolute gold, and you like that shouldn't be a surprise, but then. Look at the Godfather, and you know, even among among uh, that kind of company, you know, the company that gave us Scorsese, Spielberg, and so many others, that this still to this day manages to stand tall in uh, the American cinematic firmament is, uh, well, I mean, it's just a testament to just how actually damn good it is. Like the thing about the Godfather, yeah, it's revered, it's a classic, blah blah blah. But when you sit down and watch it, it you will like if you watch it on TV. Uh, came across on TV and just sat down, like maybe you're half an hour in, you will watch the rest of it because it is just a damn good movie. It's a great entertaining film. It is. And I think it's important to stress how incredibly unlikely that seemed at the time. In hindsight, again, everybody looks back and the world we live in is the world we live in. So everything looks certain. It's almost impossible to imagine a world where The Godfather wouldn't be a seismic kind of like success story. But you look and you look at the context from which it emerged, like Paramount Pictures um, were at the time coming out of a downward slump of the nine major studios in Hollywood at the end of the 60s. They were dead last. They were ninth. They had squandered uh, money on movies like Painter Wagon being the most infamous example, <laughs> but films like The Adventurers, The Molly Eastwood singing. Who'd have thought that wouldn't work? Well, in, uh, in, in fairness, like Lee Marvin uh, in, <laughs> in, in that is, is, is incredible. That's the kind of like, I was born yeah. under a wandering star. And the sad part is, for most people of our age, the most thing we know about Painter Ragan is the spoof and the synthesis. Yes. It is indeed. That, 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 gonna paint it fine. Gonna use an old-based paint. Cause the wood is pine. Ponderosa pine. 
Um, wow, that was quite a range. <laughs> that, this is why Excuse Phil. Me. This is why Phil is our guest for The Godfather. Not any others. Not any other guest can do this. Yeah. And I haven't done a Brando impression yet. <laughs> we're we're getting there. We're getting there. Some, get your grandpa Simpson in. <laughs> well, somehow. <laughs> I've done that. Do, 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 make, make it your Abe Vigoda impression. <laughs> Performing the Godfather entirely as characters of the Simpsons. Tom, can you get me out of this for old time's sake? <laughs> <laughs> that was actually kind of incredible. Um, <laughs> now, at the same time, we should also note that, like, the gangster film was seen as being largely in decline. The studio system was seen as being stagnant. The genres that have propelled Hollywood through the 50s and 60s were all kind of collapsing and decaying. Westerns have begun their ride off into the sunset. How ironic. You were already beginning to get revisionist Westerns kind of from, you know, Europe kind of flooding in, kind of adding a bit more blood, a bit more violence in there. Yep, yep, those are coming in towards the end of the 60s. You had, like, gangster films were seen as being cliched, hackneyed, old-fashioned. I mean, we talked... <laughs> well, sir, shut up. <laughs> shut up, you face. Uh, sorry, it's See, they were ter- um, they're terrible. See? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're maroon. Paramount certainly thought so, because yes. uh, the last uh, gangster movie they made was The Brotherhood with uh, Kirk Douglas, and that had flopped big time. So... Robert Evans, who was in charge at Parliament at the time. You bet your ass he was. Had no particular interest. Um, in So the genesis of The Godfather, like, um, the of course, famously, it's titled Mario Puzo's The Godfather. It's the thing Coppola does whenever he adapts a novel. He puts, he credits the author first. So, you know, you've got Puzo's The Godfather, Grisham's The Rainmaker, so on and so forth. Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is my exactly. favourite because there's a novelization of Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> Kids will never have heard of this. Let's do it again. It's, it, it does add a certain gravitas. It does. It, it does add. It gives it a little bit of class. Also, I rewatched uh, Dracula not so long ago, and that film is insane. I mean... I know that at this stage that Coppola could do whatever he wants, but even back in the 90s, he had lost his goddamn mind. It's amazing. I love, I love his Dracula. It's, I- um, it's kind of amazing. I mean, Oldman is astonishing. And Re- Keanu Reeves, God love him, he's astonishingly bad. <laughs> and it's just full of these contradictions. And, oh, I, it, it's so much fun. The old so fashion, the fun. use of old fashioned techniques and stuff like that. And again, we'll talk about Coppola in a moment. But you suggested like the interesting th- one of the interesting things about this generation of filmmakers is they were the first generation to go to film school. They're the first to really treat cinema as an art form. We've talked before about how we when we have filmmakers like, you know, Frank Capra, um, like, um, for example, John Ford. Whenever it was put to them that they were artists, whenever the word auteur was kind of suggested or uttered, particularly to John Ford, they'd say, no, I was just a hired hand. I was a guy doing a job. Craftsman. Craftsman. That's it. Exactly. A tradesman. And the idea is that like with New Hollywood, you had people like Coppola, who were the first generation to like go to film school to study film as an art form. And like you mentioned Bram Stoker's Dracula. One of the things I love about that is that it's shot using all the techniques that they would have used in the 30s just in the 90s in color using kind of 90s technology which is just astounding and amazing i mean it was a kind of a marker of where coppola was going to go from there because he like ever since then he's just been kind of pushing boundaries in terms of what he can get away with on screen like using old filmmaking techniques and the like um and it's amazing to me now that that film actually got a, a mainstream release 
I mean, it's the most unlikely thing. I mean, to watch Sadie Frost explode in a fountain of blood, having had her head bitten off by a, a werewolf is... Um, kind of amazing i think i've told this story before but my abiding memory of bram stoker's dracula which we are obviously here today to discuss um is the fact that uh i remember being made to sit outside the hall um in my grandmother's house in uh kilbarrick like and amuse myself while the all the adults watched the christmas movie of bram stoker's dracula so just hearing all these weird noises from the other side of the door uh which is my abiding that's the best way to experience uh francis ford coppola's bram stoker's dracula that film, I, I've said it before, like, to my mind, that film has one of the most amazing soundscapes and some of the most amazing costumes that have ever been put in a film. Uh, so for that alone deserves a look. But um, yeah, Coppola is a madman. But we'll come back to him, shall we? We, we will indeed. You mentioned Evans, and I know Andrew is a big fan of Robert Evans. You bet your ass he is. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's worth kind of and again this is the thing with the Godfather and maybe we'll come back to it later on when we talk about like auteur theory and who is responsible and who deserves credit for the Godfather because there's been a lot of wrestling and back and forth on that but like mm. Evans Evans is the man generally credited with turning Paramount around he was the head of production at Paramount Pictures from 1966 to 1974 and in some form or another he was responsible for shepherding through the movies that largely turned the fortune of the studio the studio around so for example love story and rosemary's babies which were like the rare financial successes that paramount had or enjoyed kind of in the run-up to the godfather and obviously he took charge of the godfather kind of helping shepherd it through paramount along with al Rudy, along with peter bart and obviously kind of along with francis ford coppola it's funny that um, like it, it, it is an alfred ruddy movie and 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 yeah. like we think of it as a kind of a robert evans movie because we've <laughs> seen like the kid stays in a picture yeah um, mm. And because you've listened to Robert Evans talk about like <laughs> how, how it's a Robert Evans how, picture, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But he he was just, he he was a VP of of, of Paramount. Oh, yeah. kind of kind of kind of is. You could probably say like um, you, you're just the you're just the vice president. You know, the the the, 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 the um, you, you know, cast every... tie bre- tie breaking votes in the editing booth. That's your function here. <laughs> yeah, the the watch them call it, um, like every um, success has many parents, and, yeah. and like yeah. any failure is an orphan. So yeah, it's 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 him coming along and saying, um, yeah, Francis Ford Coppola wanted it to be an hour and a half long. <laughs> what a hack. Our, our, yeah, what a what a what a hack! I said, come go get 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 away and come back to me when you have an epic. <laughs> yeah, I say, bring me an epic. We well, I know we discussed this before. I think when we talked about Chinatown, like Evans is all over these films, or at least he'll tell you he is. Like uh, Coppola wasn't even his choice. That yeah. was uh, that was Peter Bart who brought him on. Um, what Evans knew was that um, the gangsters that he was familiar with were kind of the like the jewish gangsters like bugsy's eagle yeah but for a a mob story about italian american gangsters he needed an italian american and bart suggested uh coppola uh even though his work up to this point was fairly arty and was uh, most of it they were flops um Okay, well, pro- okay, let, let, let's talk a little bit about kind of Coppola to this point. I think we'll have to. For, first yeah. of all, like... Are we going to talk about his cafe and restaurant? And his wine? Actually, and his wine? We, and his wine. Um, well, we're going to save the wine That's until we get resort. to part three. This is, I have a, and a lifestyle brand? I, 
all of which he sold in order to finance his next movie, which I kind of love. I think this is something we'll talk about when we get to Godfather Part 3. But I kind of love that Coppola, like, resents the fact that he's a brand, but accepts that that's the only way he will continue to get to make money, which I find kind of amazing, because that money allows him to make new movies. So every once in a while, he'll go back and he'll do a new commentary for The Godfather. But when you ask him his honest opinion about talking about The Godfather, he's like, it's like asking me about my ex-wife, and I'm sitting here with my new one. Um <laughs> Which is kind of a great way to talk about, like, the greatest American movie that you helped shape. Is is the commentary him just talking about, like, how much he liked um, baseball as a child? <laughs> um, um, sorry. His, what, his, his commentary on... He doesn't go all Billy Bob. <laughs> Billy Bob Thornton. I mean, his... The, his commentary on Godfather Part 3 I heartily recommend because it's very much a study of somebody talking about how they are no... You mentioned that failure is an orphan. Mm. The Godfather Part 3 commentary is Francis Ford Coppola explaining in great detail that he did not want to make The Godfather Part 3. He only made it because he desperately needed the money uh, and there is very little love in there. But oh, look, my daughter's in it. I, sorry, I can't watch <laughs> Sophia cry. Um, yeah, yeah, it is, it's, it's like, um, come on, you... You don't think I'm not going to make this movie and it grow up an orphan? Um. <laughs> um, but OK, so like just to give a bit of background uh, in terms of kind of Coppola. right? So Coppola was, again, as, as kind of Phil mentioned, one of the movie brats came up alongside Spielberg, alongside Scorsese. Lucas is particularly close. Um, and Lucas actually directed some second unit shots in The Godfather. Those spinning headlines, oh, those wow. are Lucas shots, which is kind of impressive. Um Coppola had kind of, he developed, he come up with the Roger Corman school uh, of kind of B-movie production, where he kind of gained, he, he worked in kind of B-movies before moving into features. He made movies like uh, You're a Big Boy Now, which was his major, his first major directorial debut, uh, alongside Finian's Rainbow and The Rain People as well, uh, which were both commercial flops. But here's an interesting one uh, that Andrew might find particularly uh, of interest. Uh, he also directed two softcore porn movies. Uh, Jesus. Sure. <laughs> I, I like like I, I I had stopped kind of expecting you to say things like that because sometimes when you say that I'm like what is it Darren? he's trying to class it up is, it, is, 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 is it some reference to softcore pornography and and you'll be like oh no no sorry it, 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 it was um, I was referencing it, it was French Tom philosophy or, or, yeah. Yeah, or like Jean-Jacques Rousseau <laughs> and, uh, yeah um but no, yeah, got, you're, you. But no, T and A. Yeah, I gotta keep. I gotta keep you all off balance. You know, otherwise there's no suspense. <laughs> off balance and sadly on brand. I, um, but yes, he had directed two softcore porn movies. Nothing to do with softcore <laughs> porn. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> But he, he'd also directed two. So he directed Tonight for Sure and The Bellboy and the Playgirls. Um, he had... Basically, the reason why... Neither of those are particularly enticing titles, I must say. Tonight for Sure has an exclamation mark after it. So you know it's definitely happening tonight, apparently. Um, for sure. I've... I've had those promises before. They don't pan out. But basically... Easy there, Nino Rossi. When the music starts playing, though, you you know... <laughs> that it's for sure tonight yeah, certainly um, but Coppola had basically um, Coppola basically and again this is the thing where Coppola had to be dragged almost kicking and screaming to the movie as Phil mentioned um, they 
only opted for Coppola because they wanted an Italian-American to direct it. There's some discussion about why that is. Um, I believe Evans has said he wanted the audience to smell the spaghetti off the movie. Al Ruddy has suggested that what they wanted was they wanted somebody they could point to when various Italian-American groups, and we'll come back to this, uh, raise their hands in protest at the movie and say, no, 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 this is an authentic portrayal of Italian-American culture from an Italian-American director. Coppola very famously turned down the option to direct The Godfather the first time around, but he basically had to accept it the second time because, and again, recurring theme when we talk about Coppola as a film director, he was massively in debt. Coppola had initially, after his kind of work with Corman, dreamed, and it's kind of an interesting utopian dream, of setting up a collective of American filmmakers in San Francisco. That's his American Zotrope, which is still open today but it had run into massive amounts of debt. I believe it owed massive amounts of money to Warner Brothers. Uh, himself and George Lucas were the two guys working there at the dawn of the 70s. The plan, according to uh, the, according to Coppola, was that he wanted to take the directors away from Hollywood, away from LA, and away from the suits. So if you move to San Francisco, which in the late 60s, obviously the summer of love, the city of love, um, you would also be close enough that you could work with Hollywood but you would also retain autonomous control. You could shoot and edit your films in San Francisco and move the reels to Los Angeles, but you wouldn't necessarily have studio executives hovering over your shoulders. That was the dream that Coppola had. It uh, did not work out that way. Um, And he ended up massively in debt, which is why he eventually opted to sign on and to make The Godfather. um, It's it's strange to think of it that way, that The Godfather is to use more the term that we think of with directors more recently one for them one for me and this is one for them because it's the thing he's most known for and it is possibly his crowning artistic achievement it's his most famous (laughs) ex-wife exactly (laughs) and they just won't stop talking about them well that's the thing about the godfather that i kind of and i guess we could talk about a priest lawyer zone that i find really really interesting about it is that like it is this monolithic thing in american pop culture it is as phil said one of the great american movies it's an institution you uh, say it you yeah that, that is, sorry but it, just to kind of underline the point you're making as a child when i would have uh, been forbidden from watching um the godfather i had microsoft cinemania on um i remember cinema yeah. oh god and it just had that clip what a, what a program. from um the godfather where where it's marlon brando and he was like you come with me honey on my daughter's wedding day um sorry that's first terrible. impression folks first impression <laughs> one. Many more to come we're, we're no scoring doubt. one down the bottom <laughs> one that was a miss <laughs> <laughs> i now have to i knew i now have to do a penalty lap <laughs> um, yeah, um, but and I I dressed up um, for Halloween as Marlon Brando from The Godfather um, that year. And you, you and you had not seen the actual movie; you had just seen a clip in Microsoft Cinemania. This is like '97, so I guess I would have been nine. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. Or no, wait, wait, no, eleven. Yeah. Did you have a cat? So, wow. Um, I did not have a cat. I the it's it's. It's possible I didn't see the cat in the clip. I <laughs> 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 couldn't find one. Um, the kid, it's the the the, um, the cat died. Um, <laughs> sorry, you didn't save the cat. No, um, yeah. it's like he's still good. It's still good. Um, but like, 
like we we think of like the Godfather as this kind of sacred institution. Again, you know, at the top of the AFI list, all this sort of stuff voted like the second best American movie of all time on various lists and various polls and stuff like that. Um, and like we treat it as this sacred object. But what I find really interesting about the Godfather is that it is this incredibly trashy, pulpy, uh, kind of like raw kind of genre piece. It's you look at it and it's not. You know, it is beautifully made. Be careful made. It is... with <laughs> like description of trashy. Yeah, oh. Be careful, Darren. You know, you know the luck you've had with various stands of late. <laughs> I know. I, I'm trying to provoke the Godfather fans. When you right think here. about it, it's a piece of trash. <laughs> 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 okay, but you know, you know what I'm saying. It's like it, it's tr- like historically. Get on board in terms with Amer- this. <laughs> 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 historically in American cinema, um, you look at things like say westerns. You look at things like gangster films. They're traditionally kind of written off. They're seen as low art. They're seen as disposable. Um, they're seen as things things that don't necessarily have huge artistic merit. They're not necessarily treated in the same way that something like, say, Gone with the Wind, these extensive melodramas are. They're arguably seen as being a step down from, like, the big MGM musicals or the biblical epics of the 60s. And I find it really fascinating that The Godfather... Like, and again, Mario Puzo himself will be entirely honest about this. He wrote two extremely personal books, one semi-autobiographical, which garnered great reviews from critics and sold absolutely nothing. He wrote The Godfather because he was like, I want to make a book that's going to make a shed load of money so I don't have to worry about this anymore. So he sat down to write the most populous thing he had ever written, like with an expectation that it would appeal to audiences' sensibilities. Um, Like The Godfather, the novel has an extensive and elaborate subplot about the size of Sonny Schlong. Guns, glamour... And giant schlongs. Yes. Um, what more could you? That want? is that is the cover that I believe is the cover line. I think Andrew read the tagline from the second edition of the book there, but but like that that's it. It's it's like it. You look at the Godfather, and I think Coppola has been. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. No. 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 Go ahead. But I think Coppola has been like quite frank, and he said like I told Mario this when we worked together on the film that you know there's a lot of this book that is is not very good. I couldn't. I took me a lot of. Took, it was very hard for me to read it, to get through it, to get to the end of it. I found myself. It was very hard and very long. <laughs> yeah, much like Sonny Schlong. Um, but yes, like you look at like The Godfather as a premise just on paper, and it. Without knowing that it would become The Godfather, without knowing that it would be shot in such a way that it would redefine cinema, without knowing that it will contain performances that are iconic and beloved, without knowing that it's it would turn out Jaws, like, though. like kind of that's that exactly it. Yeah, it, yeah. That, that there's so many of these. Same with Star Wars. Uh, it's like all of these filmmakers, like they just they just set out to make the movies they loved, and the fact that they went on to become these beloved classics is it's kind of coincidence, really. And like I find myself reading kind of books sometimes where um they're not especially good books, but there's like the imagery or the the um, iconography or the yeah, lines yeah. or dialogue just or something. kind of uh, can 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 stick with me, um uh, and where 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 like a better book can feel less cinematic sometimes, um more difficult to adapt. Most people who have read, uh. Puzo's novel would agree that the film is a significant improvement over it. Like Darren said, it's trashy and populist, but it's sold. Like it's all big. Paramount bought the rights to it before it was published. And Evans was not keen on making it until the sales for the book came in. 
and then he rushed it into production. And I mean, the original idea was that this was going to be just a cheap toss off. At one point, like Paramount and Evans himself suggested that to save money, like the Puzo should readapt it and set it in the 70s with, and I quote, hippies or something <laughs> uh, in order to make it cheaper to shoot. And apparently Puzo dutifully went. And I love that like Coppola in entries is fantastic. I mean, he's, he's basically like it was trash, but Puzo did what he was told. They told him to do it and he did it. And it was as terrible as it was always going to be. And apparently Evans said, feck it just do it properly and like that that's the thing about it is that it it's it's something that i don't think anybody working on it expected to be what it became i don't think anybody working on the godfather was like this is going to be the defining american movie and i don't think a lot of people like waiting for it to come out in cinemas like even the people who were fans of the book and phil's right it was a cultural phenomenon you had people insisting on auditioning for the part of michael who had never acted before you had people showing up inside the paramount like headquarters and bothering like charlie bloodhorn saying no 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 i'm the guy to play michael you don't understand i've lived it <laughs> and the, 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 you underscore what you're saying more the the, the, the like the it's you get this kind of unknown and he's terrible. It's, <laughs> yes. it's, it's, it's he's like, a guy who's been in theater. He's just been on theater. He's got a movie. It's exactly. coming out in Panic in Needle Park. Nobody's seen it. Um, he's just on theater. Nobody knows who he is. He's not Robert Redford. He, he's not Ryan O'Neill. But they're looking at the dailies. Yeah. And they're thinking kind of like, this this guy is so wooden. He's not doing anything. Like, the, <laughs> the, the, this guy, the, is, it, is this guy Al Pacino? Um, is he just always going to be so understated in his performance? <laughs> Never him anyway. Never heard of him. Can we, can, we, can we get him to turn up the volume? Maybe shout a little bit? Maybe come through? <laughs> exactly. But- and like that, that's and like even even things like famously like the the footage that was shot like a Brando like the opening sequence that Andrew mentioned where he's holding the cat. By the way, I love he found the cat on the abandoned on the sets in New York where they were shooting because the sets were rat infested and he just refused to leave. The cat just refused to leave. It's too happy there. In fact, yeah. it, apparently the cat was purring so loud out of contentment that they had to redub Brando's lines. <laughs> that's it exactly like that they were now, like, that when... isn't an augur of good things to come like, <laughs> but the, the cat's happy but but that's it like the paramount executives were looking at the footage and they couldn't hear brando talking they could just hear the cat purring into the microphone like there was a sense that everything was completely and utterly screwed at one point sorry uh, <laughs> At one point during production, like, there were stories of, like, an attempted coup against Francis Ford Coppola, like, by uh, the editor at the time, um, who basically kind of said, um, apparently he'd been working with uh, Jack Ballard, um, who was the guy who'd been hired to keep an eye on the money spending. And we'll come back to Ballard, because Ballard is an absolutely fascinating character. Um, But apparently there'd been this suggestion that Aram Avarkian, the editor, had been organizing a little coup on set to replace Coppola, to have Coppola fired and to have him come in and take over as department head and basically ghost direct the rest of the movie. And apparently Coppola found out about this. And Coppola, like Coppola's logic on this is fantastic. Coppola said, look, I know know how studios think. They're not going to fire a director in the middle of the week. They're going to wait until Friday because that way the production has like Saturday and Sunday to get back on feet and then you can resume filming on Monday. So Coppola 
when he found out on Wednesday, called an immediate meeting in the afternoon and fired six department heads in order to prove his point. And he's gone back and forth about whether or not who was behind the coup or whether Aramavakian was part of it or whether he was just the guy who was behind it. Who, who told him about the meeting? He's <laughs> <laughs> <was> like, hey, <laughs> uh, <laughs> studio heads want to talk to you next week. We can meet on my turf. Yeah. <laughs> my guys will handle security. Um, <laughs> Um. Oh God. Like, yeah. Like you said, there were constant rumors that Coppola was going to get axed. Uh, it's alleged that I think Evans had Elia Kazan on, yes, uh, like on standby just in case they finally managed to get rid of him. Yeah, and I mean, like uh, Costa Gravius apparently had turned it down the director of Zed as well, and like yeah, sort Co- of Costa Gavras. Yeah. And also Preminger. Yeah, and and kind of like, and you have this idea, like Coppola's talked about how like he he could feel all that kind of hanging over him. At one point, um, and again, I kind of I kind of love that this the story that's told is that like at one point after an argument uh, with Willis, the cinematographer, and we'll probably talk about it Willis later on, but like at one point, um, Coppola stormed off set, asking like Brando's assistant wandered onto set, turned to Brando and said, "What did you do now?" And Brando said it wasn't me this time. Apparently it was Brando's response. But Coppola stormed into his office and then two seconds later there was a sound of what sounded like a gunshot. Um, and everybody on set just kind of silently stood there awkwardly and it turned out that Coppola just slammed the door so hard that he had broken it. It had come off its hinges. But apparently everybody on set was for a solid like minute and a half like, oh no, this, is, this has happened. We finally did it. We finally reached that point in production. Coppola has described the making of The Godfather as the toughest professional experience of his life. And keep in mind, we will be talking about Apocalypse Now uh, in a couple of weeks on this podcast. <laughs> but he said that like on, oh dear. on Apocalypse Now, at least he was a proven director. He was seen as he was kind of respected and validated and he had power. But on this movie, he was often seen as treated as almost like a hired hand. So it, it's kind of, you know, and he had to fight for absolutely everything that he wanted down to the casting of Brando, the casting of Pacino. So, like, it's remarkable to me that this movie turned out to be as kind of good as it was. And like, and again, this is something I find really interesting about it and kind of vaguely depressing. And this is the point where Darren shows his... um shows his kind of like film bro credentials and his kind of like nostalgic kind of, you know, ah, things uh, things are bad. Things aren't as good as they used to be nonsense that, you know, we normally decry on here. But like, The Godfather was a critical commercial and awards darling. It was a movie that was immediately heralded by critics as one of the best movies ever made. It was a movie that audiences were queuing around the block to see. According to Robert Evans, who, as we all know, is the most reliable source on these things, particularly when it comes to matters concerning the success of Robert Evans, <laughs> claimed that it took The Godfather six weeks to make as much as Gone with the Wind had made in 36 years. Um, and you obviously you have it then at the Oscars, where it has this kind of massive sweep as well. And it's kind of amazing that there was this film that, you know, wasn't just an arty, abstract, you know, smelling its own farts kind of movie, but was also a movie that everybody in America was like, yeah, have you seen? Have you seen The Godfather yet? You need to go see The Godfather. It's kind of amazing that the film had that level of success. And it's kind of interesting to imagine how culture is kind of fractured since. Like, would something like that be possible today, perhaps? 
I think absolutely 100%. (laughs) Like, I I don't think it... Personally, I don't think it matters when it comes out. Early, like, then or later. Um, That that, 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 it just has too much going for us. That I I I think it was like an an inevitable kind of classic. Not not in the sense that obviously there was a lot of people w- worried when making it that it was going to be a complete disaster. But when you watch the actual finished product, you can't like look at this and <laughs> and and think anything but this is this is an absolute classic. And 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 it, it that like we are used to kind of becoming inured to things. Where 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 we where where we're told something is a classic, and then we we watch it, and um, it's a very difficult kind of um, act to follow. Is the 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 kind of cultural the reputation we have a reputation exactly, um, but the the like you you just go through all of the different ways in which you could judge a movie, um, and. The Godfather just like excels, like the 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 the, the um like you mentioned the editor, the editing is incredible, the 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 the, the like the cinematography, sort of light and shadow, like the 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 the. the, the we we should by the way when we when that... we mentioned the editor by the way we are not crediting Aram Afakin who was fired after <laughs> being involved in a palace coup. Um, the ending was actually done by Peter Zinner who worked on the second half and William H Reynolds who worked on the first. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. I do love the idea of like Coppola sitting down with his wine to enjoy a podcast about The Godfather and he's like that bastard um, <laughs> first Robert Evans uh, now now Avakin but Phil sorry what about yourself like is there am I wrong to be am I perhaps being a bit pessimistic or not like does it feel like cultures moved on where you that sort of success seems unlikely now where like we look at the Oscars and there's this debate about like the best popular film that we see, which is, you know, kind of crazy nonsense. We have these big debates about whether something like even Return of the King could win best picture uh, these days anymore. Something that has this broad populist success. Uh, you you saw this kind of like the debate that we had over whether or not No Way Home could get a best picture nomination. Um, and like you see, I would argue that you arguably even see it in discussions or reactions against and again, I, there are reasons to be wary of auteurism. Like we've talked about, say, Stanley Kubrick. We've talked about like the abuses of people like Bertolucci and stuff like that. We've talked about like there are reasons to be wary of the auteur and the romanticization of the auteur. But there's this big pushback in modern culture against like pop or pulpy material that aspires to art. So like things like The Batman, which is a movie we are probably going to cover next week or the week after. It comes out that that movie has a runtime of three hours. Uh, and is going to be a comment on American society. And people are immediately like, what the hell is this? It's a stupid superhero movie that thinks it's got big ideas and notions and it's indulgent and all this sort of stuff. And I, I'm wondering, it's- like, if to, if today you announced that this director who had made two porno movies uh, was going to make a gangster, a superhero movie that was three hours long based on a you know a comic book where one of the major subplots was the size of a secondary character's schlong like i wonder like what the reaction to that would be like could i, I think we're, okay. we're uh, sorry darren i i just think it's the last 10 years or so that we're kind That's of fair. Got, gotten kind of used to um there being a big distinction between kind of the best 
film Oscar say as a measure of 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 kind of what is the best film of the um of the year versus kind of what did people actually go out and see um i think that's, i think but, that's actually quite true yeah like there's there's a big like you notice now if you were to rank the best picture oscar winners say by their box office the lowest grossing ones would be among the most recent yeah so things like the hurt locker would or, you know things like that they're they're very they're way down that list but like you said, Darren, there, this is a remarkable confluence of critical and commercial success. And I mean, I'd like to think that that age isn't gone, but there does seem to be this kind of wedge driven between uh, popular, what's popular and what's you know perceived as you know high art or something like that. I don't know. Um, uh, I'd like to think it could come back. I mean, you find that sometimes that this kind of phenomenon where the two tastes kind of dovetail, it happens now and again. Uh, I think, think of something like, say, Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Like that pulpy material, but classy, gets gets critical uh, acclaim and is a huge hit and then goes on to win five Oscars. I think like Slumdog Millionaire was, well, obviously that, that, that probably, like his reputation isn't kind of intact and was maybe not, adored by critics as much but it, like like won the best picture oscar um and was also kind of a a huge movie as i recall anyway like it, it, yeah it made, i remember no it made a lot of money was it Man, the departed like though they're they're much kind of larger than something like the shape of water or nomadland kind of where yeah well i think like some of these movies have become phenomena um Outside, even outside of that immediate context, like Darren, I think you're going to say that there was a kind of a run in the nineties. Like so, so, like, so, like, Science of the Lambs, Unforgiven, for example, even Schindler's, Schindler's List. Schindler's yeah. List was one of the Forrest top Gump. twelve grossing movies of its year. Forrest Gump was the second highest grossing movie of its year and the Best Picture winner. Um, and Braveheart. Bra- Braveheart, I think Braveheart underperformed financially, if I remember correctly, which is interesting. Like, if I, that I, I find surprising, I ran through like the list of nineties winners, and Braveheart is the runt of the litter, which is astonishing when you think of its cultural impact indeed um, but they may take our then, lives but, but they'll never take our box office gropes but yes like andrew's right you go you jump to like titanic as well as a great example <sighs> yeah yeah this is the thing about being a 90s kid like <laughs> nobody no youngster now is ever going to understand the titanic hype like there are movies that come out now that make far more than titanic ever did but just the cultural phenomenon of the, the time, the movie, the song, the just fascination that suddenly everybody had with Titanic and shipwrecks. I, I just, ah, oh, yeah. halcyon days. I, re- I remember the, the, the um, and Darren will probably remember as well, that the cinema in Sligo was being refurbished. So it wasn't open. Yes. So people were yes. going to <laughs> yeah. like Balanam. Bundoran, wasn't it? Yeah. And, yeah, or Bundoran to, 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 to watch Titanic. But Jordan feels like a more apt setting for it, to be fair. <laughs> for any listeners abroad, it's a seaside town. Like, yeah, no, my, my mum, we saw it when we went up to Enniskillen on, like, shopping day at Christmas. Like, that, like I remember it was that much of an event. Like, it was that And much it was an ideal Christmas movie as well. Yeah. It was big. It was long. It was... Like much like Sonny's... Sonny Corleone's <laughs> schlong. Yeah. But like, Although, to be fair, if your schlong was really that big, I'd like to think he'd be less angry. Well, I mean, like, the okay, Phil... We're, okay, fine. This is now the Godfather book oh. podcast. One of the core recurring themes of the Godfather book is that it is featured heavily in the movie. 
as well. Like it's, it, it, there's an allusion to it. Yes, yes, and and yeah. his affairs are are mentioned and kind of, but it's, it's not. There's a whole visual kind of uh, a yeah. reference to it. Yeah, oh, like like there's a moment where they ask Sonny's wife like how much of the Godfather novel is about the size of Sonny Schlong, and she makes a gesture at a table. Um, but like there's. In the book, there's an entire subplot about how, like, the maid of how he manages to find a woman who has the perfectly sized vagina for him, and like that is a major like plot point that pays off over the course of the movies because he's so large, it's so uncomfortable for women. So it takes a very special woman who I believe has had surgical procedures uh, yeah. in order to allow her to handle. But it's, but it's uh, not too cavernous that she doesn't enjoy it either. It's it's the Goldilocks kind of of um, yeah yeah. And, and I mean, you have to like you have to imagine Francis Ford Coppola just reading this, going, "Yeah, this is going to be the great American movie right here." Um, okay, is, before we jump to the spoiler zone, is there anything else you want to talk about? Just like broadly, because there's so much to talk about about The Godfather. But before we jump into the meat of the movie itself, is there anything kind of like Phil you want to say by way of introduction to this movie? Um, I think more than any other movie we could talk about on this podcast, no, it's The Godfather. Honestly, yeah. genuinely, it's the movie that needs no introduction. It's kind of like, it, yeah, it feels redundant. Like they, they, they yeah. and and they, but like, like, I feel like it's such it's such a well liked movie that people, if they're listening to a podcast, will want to see what have they said about The Godfather. You know, I yeah, hope like, one of the hosts it, didn't describe it as trash because that would make <laughs> me really angry. Like, I mean, I don't mean to denigrate this podcast, but Darren, ask us the three questions. And this will probably be the this could be among the most predictable of the three question sessions that you'll get. All right. Well, look, maybe I I mean, I'm open to curveballs. Well, he, here is the curveball, Phil, because you asked for one. Um, going to ask it this week, going to ask it next week, probably going to ask a variant of it in the third week. Godfather or Godfather Part Two, Phil? Godfather. By uh, by a nose. Ooh. Like barely. I mean, I love both. Um... I just think, if I even had to pick out a reason why, I think it's just going to be personal taste. And I think the story in one is just a little bit more manageable. The yeah. second second one's plot is just a little bit more labyrinthine. And especially between the cost cutting between, um, the, not cross, the cross cutting rather, between uh, the uh, story of Vito and the story of Michael. Um, it's just, it, it's nothing wrong with it. But just the first one just feels a little more streamlined. And that's about the only reason why. Okay. I'm really glad that you didn't say two after we invited you on for one. Uh, thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> it might have been a bit awkward. No, no, I do prefer the first. Barely. And, I love two. And Andrew, do you have a preference? Godfather 1, Godfather 2? Or are you going to throw a curveball and say Apocalypse Now? <laughs> Bram Stoker's um, Dracula. I I I would say this one is the one maybe for me. I'm not saying that it's better because it that's a kind of a it's a subjective thing. I think they're both great, and I would find it difficult to 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 to, to kind of separate them. Um, but I but I but they, they, this this is the one that kind of like stands out for me, and there can't be a Godfather too, without a Godfather. Um, yeah. So like they they, they it, it certainly has that going for it, you know. Um, and I've just watched it, and I I I, I haven't yet watched <laughs> um a, a, a rewatch of of Godfather two lately. 
So um, same. Yeah. I mean, if I rewatch, God, if I were to rewatch Godfather two tonight or tomorrow, hell, I might have a different opinion. Mm, yeah, but probably not. But I could. <laughs> and maybe not so much for part three, though. Why? That's just waiting for a rediscovery. Um, and I would, I would agree with that. I would agree with both Phil and Andrew there. Like, I mean, this is. You know, not to jump too far ahead, this is it for me, really. This is one of my favorite movies ever made. Um, and I think it, it is largely, and again, it's it's a hair's breadth between this and two. They are both arguably perfect movies. Um, they're both miracles of filmmaking. They're both films that I watch and go, this is, like, transcendental and amazing. Uh, but I think what, what kind of, like, gives the first one the edge over me, uh, edge over the second one for me, is is I think what Phil said about it being a simpler narrative it's a arguably a much more archetypal story it's it's much i mean you you could argue that there 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 is an extent to which uh that archetypal story is kind of repeated in 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 vito story yeah the second one and 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 merit and deconstruct like i think like the second film is doing a lot of really clever and brilliant stuff and again i'm not denigrating it by saying i slightly prefer the first one like it's not a criticism i i love both of them but i think i i like the simplicity of this like i this is a three-hour movie and i watched it the weekend with my parents um i watched it the weekend while i was visiting my parents and we ended up just watching it all it flows so perfectly every scene um, like i can think of like yeah. i was watching it and it's like we'll never be able to talk about yeah. everything yeah. yeah like we haven't even hit the spoiler zone yet and we're nearly an hour in yeah so i'm gonna take that prompt and say phil do you think that the godfather belongs yes. on the list yes just yeah okay. all three questions right now yes it belongs in the top 250. Yes, it's in my top 250. Yes, you should watch it right now. Okay. Done. Okay, all right. I'm not going to ask any follow-up questions, even though I want to. Uh, and- <laughs> Andrew, three questions. Go. Uh, let me see. Um, <laughs> yes. You know, what was absolutely- the first one again? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it, it absolutely does deserve to be on the list. It deserves to be high on the list. Um, it's uh, it's tremendous. It's, um, it's incredible. And it, it's... Uh, it's very kind of it's very much a a, a movie about America, and um, it, it, it kind of captures um, that very well. It's a very much a movie about our our the the century that um, that we were all kind of like born in, and yeah, it's 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 tremendous. Like it's it's I like I'm. Maybe Darren knows, but it just feels faultless, and like that you go through it, and like as I say, like the performances, the characters, um, like what, what, what can you say wrong about it? Absolutely, one hundred percent. What about yourself? Uh, yes, yes, and yes. Um, this is this is like it for me again. I think yeah. I have alluded to it earlier. This is, I don't know if it's my favorite movie because my favorite movie is always changing. Um, but in my like letterbox for the Mount Rushmore of movies I happened to pick when I signed up to Letterbox, it was this, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, uh, Brazil, and uh, The Big Lebowski. Um, this is a movie I remember watching when I first started to really care about movies. So when I was about nine or ten, um, I remember like getting the VHS. I remember watching it with my dad, and I remember it making like an indelible impression. And I watched it last night for the first time in at least five years, and it was like, yep, every scene and 
almost yeah. every line just coming back to me perfectly. Um, so yes, it is is absolutely brilliant. And if you haven't seen it, uh, go see it. I don't like being that person. who's like, what do you mean you haven't seen The Godfather? Life no, is, no, life, yeah. yeah, don't. We're not that guy. We're not those guys. Life is life is short. I'll be that guy. Okay, <laughs> Phil, don't be that guy. Um, <laughs> but like. But like, uh, yeah. What if you mean you, if you haven't have... seen the Godfather? You have to see the Godfather. I've got a knife <laughs> <laughs> and a copy of the Godfather on VHS. Yeah. Um, but no, if if you on ha- sixteen mil, <laughs> restored in four K HD, baby. Um, but no, I mean, if you haven't seen it, it's it's a great opportunity to see it if it's in cinemas. If you feel safe doing so, if not, um, like it will be available oh. in four K. What? Can you imagine being a kid these days and The Godfather is about to be re-released in a new restored version and you've never seen it before? Yeah. That thrill. Oh. Just, oh, like, I got shivers. Like, I envy these people. Like, I mean, I, I've had that reaction with, like, le- and I say lesser movies as if every movie isn't comparatively, <laughs> you know, likely to be be a lesser movie. But I've had that experience yeah. with 70s movies where I've gone to see them in the IFI and seeing them in, in prints, whether restored or otherwise, like seeing The Conversation, which is a movie we hopefully will talk about at some point over this season, if I can bully Andrew into saying yes to that. Um <laughs> by continually referencing it until we just accept it as a fact of life um but like seeing that um in the ifi a couple of years ago is just amazing um or you know kind of like seeing like what was the, what was the other one there was there was again there was the the altman one is it the big goodbye the one with uh, elliot gould big goodbye Big goodbye. seeing that uh in a pit- where no surface is unable to light a match <laughs> but like <laughs> Seeing those movies uh, in that environment, seeing, I think, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, um, like, a decade ago, plus more, Um, like, seeing those movies in a cinema, and again, I, you know, this is where I I hate, I'm kind of a film bro, and I fully acknowledge I'm a film bro, and I apologize to any listeners put off by my film bro-ness, but, like, watch movies however you like, watch them, you know, on your TV, watch them on Blu-ray, you know, hell, watch them on your phone if you absolutely have to, but, like, I do love seeing them on a big screen and i think that experience is magical when it's something when it's a movie that is magical and yeah i'm i'm almost disappointed that we are recording this ahead of time because i am probably going to have seen the godfather last night darren says mixing up his tenses um all right with that in mind we will segue neatly into the spoiler zone Okay, so Andrew's back at back at level. He's back at level. Alright, so Phil. Yeah. What is The Godfather about for you? Well, for a movie that has the potential to be quite trashy. Potentially, I didn't say it was. <laughs> um I, I also said it was my favourite movie of all time. I feel like the two of them cancel each other out. Um, I agree. Well, it, it, uh it has that very melodramatic kind of Talia Shire um, performance, but it, it feel it 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 completely works. Like it it's it, oh, yeah. and it, in context. herself and like Santino um, and their kind of performances. Anyway, sorry. But next, yeah, um, train of thought. I beg your pardon. Yes. So, what's it about? Um, it's a movie about everything. Like, like why I brought that point up about how the Godfather could have turned out. Like for something that is 
and linear narrative and, you know, mobsters and all this kind of thing. And, you know, nothing necessarily revelatory in the basic narrative stakes. But one of the reasons that it was so successful when it came out is that it tapped into so much of what people were thinking about at the time. It's a film that really has a very, very interesting uh, kind of duality at its core. I mean, the basic plot, as we most people understand, is, of course, about the Corleone family. And Michael uh, Al Pacino, still one of his defining performances, comes home from duty in the army. He's got his new girlfriend in tow, the luminous Diane Keaton, pre pre Annie Hall uh, or any of her work with Woody Allen. She was off. She was off stage. Like again, she she'd been in the hippie musical Hair. I mean, she's again yeah. the thing. Most of this cast was largely unknown when it was cast, which was a huge point of contention. Um, it, it was like uh, I mean, it's you incredible. Could, like they couldn't considering how big they are now. Yeah, like they the like Popola wanted fresh faces. He wanted people to see these people as the characters, not as anything else. You know, at it's funny. The first scene that was actually shot, or one of the first scenes was um, Michael and Kay, so Pacino and Keaton, arriving at the wedding, which, of course, opens the film. And, you know, Michael, of course, coming in, and he's there, presumably out of a sense of duty, one, to attend his sister's wedding, but two, to introduce Kay to the family. And, of course, that has two meanings. But he's having to explain to her the ways of the family, the ins and outs, but always with a certain sense of remove. That's my family, Kay. That's not me. At the core level, the story is Michael's, about how he goes from being a stand-up citizen, a man who served his country, going from that upstanding gentleman to a killer, the head of a crime syndicate, head of the Corleone family. It's the, that loss of humanity and when this film came out in the early 1970s, I mean, America was very much entering a period where the national psyche was uh, was undergoing huge, huge turmoil. Vietnam was still raging. It was still reeling from the death of the promise of the 60s, the summer of love and... Um, the death of Kennedy, the, op- the ascension the of, of Nixon, the chaos of 1968, the you end really of the summer of love. really need to stop... Sorry. You've got to stop with this phraseology, the ascension of Nixon. He's not Darth Vader. He's not the Emperor. <laughs> I am not a Sith. He was actually the Emperor. He was a huge inspiration for the Emperor. Thank you very much. When Lucas was asked... Fair, yeah, fair. When Lucas was but, asked who's the Emperor, he was like, yeah, Richard Nixon. Sorry. Look, I'm very I'm very much of the Oliver Stone kind of train of oh, thought when it comes to I, Nixon. I love Oliver Stone's Nixon. Yeah, did some stuff, did, go- did some good stuff you as know, well. And yeah, I love Nixon's stuff. People who who just tune in um, on the radio broadcast of oh, the, uh, the Emperor, yeah, oh. thought, thought that thought that he definitely like um, uh, took it, and and that they would follow the dark side. Um, <laughs> but people who are watching the video stream live in Fortnite, on the other hand, um, they they yeah, were much yeah. more like, no, 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 Qui Gon Jinn has it. Sorry, Phil. I. I kind of dis- the, I I think I disagree somewhat with the with the 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 kind of characterization, or sorry, with the with the description of the sort of arc of of Michael in a couple of ways, and it it's it's an interesting movie in that it kind of allows different interpretations. I feel 
that Michael's humanity has already been destroyed when we first because he was him. a soldier possibly because, because he's, a veteran because of he's come back from World War Two. there's a moment and he, in it yeah. when he is outside the hospital and Enzo is yes. there and he's taking out his cigarette and his hand is shaking and he he's trying to light um, a cigarette but he can't because he, he's too nervous and Michael takes it lights the cigarette and he looks at his hand and how it isn't shaking and that that he has whether it's um congenital kind of um coldness or where or, or whether that is something that he is kind of um got from from going out to 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 fight mm-hmm. a war where where the, where the other kind of um brothers and sisters you were, when when you go back to your family you 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 you're changed there is there is well yeah but there is a tendency to kind of like um revert to type of 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 whoever you were when you lived with them and that the same kind of relationship kind of resurfaces but he's not so so they're kind of thinking oh college boy <laughs> you know yeah, and and he he, uh, I get the impression that Michael was in Europe, um, seeing terrible things and doing terrible things. Well, so, sorry, I, I when I say terrible things, I mean um, kind of in in the line of duty. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, he was like a soldier. He's guilty of war crimes or anything. Um, well, just like anybody who lives through that is kind of scarred by the experience yeah. of it, and like, and that's that's the thing is that like, it's. Michael, and again, this is this is the thing, whether innately or whether as a result of his experience overseas, it's very clear that Michael is in complete control in a way that Sonny is not. Mm. So you have that you have that sequence where the most obvious, you know, like obviously when they with the sequence where he goes to the hospital and he's able to improvise his situation out of that just by posing, just by getting Enzo the baker to hold his hand inside his jacket like he's holding a gun. But that sequence where after he's been beaten and you have the like the confrontation between, you know, Sonny and Tom, you know, over like being a wartime consigliere or stop stop telling me how to solve this or stop telling me how to make peace and start telling me how to win this. And you have just Michael sitting down in the chair and Michael explaining very coldly and very rationally what they need to do and the camera and again Coppola's camera zooming in as Michael becomes the center of gravity and it's kind of interesting to wonder like again was Michael always like that was Michael made that by the war I I, I don't necessarily think that it's like Michael was thrust into the situation and he suddenly becomes this I think he is all he is this by the point he arrives and this just makes it inescapable perhaps i i would say uh, if i want if you want to get on board with andrew's interpretation of it and i think that's an interesting way of looking at it i would say maybe at the opening of the film there's potential for him to go either way like right. uh, but yeah. the the optimism i think is mostly in his love life i mean the two women that he becomes involved with over the course of the film yeah. like they're the ones that offer him hope and a life outside of the family and when one of them is taken away, he kind of goes back to the other one just kind of out of a maybe because, you know, he just needs a partner and then continues on his road into the into the mob. Into I think role. I think that's very astute because it's great kind of visual storytelling how she is this um, kind of um, she's in kind of, you know, her sundress. And there, there is something very kind of like different about um, 
her kind of to 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 his family. Well, that that yeah. Well, sorry, Darren, go ahead. Well, I was going to make the point that yeah, like it. One of the obviously the one of the big readings about the Godfather is that it's a story about like integration, assimilation, and culture. Oh, absolutely. And the and, whole thing of the we'll get there, Pop. We'll get there. Yeah. We'll get there. And the idea that, you know, obviously, like, you know, the promise he makes to Kay that the family will be completely legitimate in five years and all this sort of stuff. But the idea that you have even like and, and like somebody pointed this out and it's a very astute observation. It's that like Michael is the most anglicized and integrated member of the Corleone family. So even just look at the first names. Santino Corleone. Frederico Fredo Corleone. Uh, even Connie is Constanza Corleone. And Michael is the one who gets the most anglicized, most American name. And you have like the bit where like when the police come to arrest him, it's like, oh, he's he's a war hero. And you have the conversation, like the last conversation he has with his father, where his father's like, I didn't want this for you. Yeah. I wanted you to be Senator Corleone. I didn't have yeah. enough time. Yeah. I- Senator Corleone, Governor Corleone. And I think it's interesting that Michael goes to Kay and I think you're right that like there's no I don't know that there's love there at the end like after he's lost to Paulina who's like and again the, uh, the it's very telling that the two women the two loves of his life are like the most waspish woman imaginable uh, Diane Keaton or like Apollonia, yeah. the exotic Italian back in the hometown that is literally named after him and he ends up losing her and ends up alienating Kay, and like the closing sequence is him closing the door on Kay, literally shutting her out of his life. But the idea that he can never be, he can never be all American, despite the fact that he's introduced, like again, dating Kay and wearing a U.S. Marine uniform, he can never be entirely American, yeah, like, which is is interesting. I mean, it, that's that's kind of the tragedy of it. Like he has the potential to transcend the family. Like he doesn't have. Like he's got a better, he's got a stronger backbone than Fredo, but he also just isn't cursed with, with Sonny's temper or Connie's hysterics. Like he's calm, cool, collected. He has the ability to extricate himself from all of this. He has, he has the ability and he has the control and the confidence. But like you said, because of what happens, particularly in his love life, he ends. He has to let go of K to get away after the after the assassinations, and he loses Apollonia, who is who is assassinated, and so when he comes back, that thing that we were saying about how he's maybe been shaped by experiences abroad. So not for the first time, when he comes back from Sicily, he comes back a changed yeah. man after having witnessing violence, and. Yeah then he just kind of segues into the life, into the family, and takes Kay back just kind of as a, not an afterthought, but just kind of a sense of what he has to do, form his own family. Yeah, obligation, An perhaps. obligation like, like to start his own family, as well as become part of the family. And that kind of comes to what I was going to say the film is really about. And there's a kind of certain duality at the core of it. Uh, one thing, one of the things that I think the Godfather would have clued into when it was released is that as, as you know, at the time, war was raging, assassinations had happened, and people were questioning the leadership of the time. And this was just before Nixon was going to be implicated 
in the Watergate scandal and the massive distrust of American institutions came to Which the fore. Which we will talk about on our episode about the conversation. Absolutely. It's definitely happening. Mm. So when that happened, better believe it, Andrew. Uh, but when that happens, the, or when that happened, the, the Godfather was giving an image of a structure, a patriarchal structure in which their decisions were being made for the advancement of this particular structure, for the family. Read the family as being government, as being the president, as being whoever you want. But as long as it's, you're reading it into somebody who's in charge, it's the old way of doing things. And it's effective, but it's violent and it's corrupting and it's all pervasive and immensely cruel. And people saw this image in The Godfather and they, re- they would have linked it to what was happening in that cultural moment. They, they see the mob reflecting certain aspects of, of everyday life, of the, I suppose, the, the failure of the institutions that people had experienced that, that they just weren't. And it's right there in the opening scene with, with the uh, with the Undertaker bonus area. Yeah, the, the opening movie, the opening, the opening line. line is, I believe. I believe in America. And then it's a story about institutional failure because it leads to the idea that the police couldn't properly prosecute the, the kind of two boys. He's having to beg the mob to help him solve his problem with what happened with his daughter who was roughed up by these hooligans. And so, like you say, because institutions have failed, they have to turn to this illicit means a kind of justice revenge basically and of course he'll get his revenge but it comes to the price that old the mob cliche of i want you to do me a favor on the other hand besides this more i suppose you could call it if you want to go political which is never particularly my forte but if you want to take put it this way don't worry phil i'm just going to open this section of my notes here Mm -hmm. (laughs) a whomping encyclopedia but if you want to (laughs) boom Um so if you want to read that as a kind of left-wing interpretation of being critical of existing political institutions absolutely on the other hand you also in the structure of the family get to see a in you know kind of in an embryonic form the kind of conservatism that would later call become part and parcel of american life with the election of ronald reagan and the uh, onset of the 80s where family is the all defining structure family is concrete family is everything and michael enters into this structure in the hopes of advancing to the top of making of of becoming the man in charge of taking I, on leadership and I, does he want to or does he feel it's his duty because i think that's what family is about it's not about kind of like oh i really want to <laughs> well there is <laughs> but again um, there you that, have that's that you do what's required but um, you can read it either way yeah he's doing what's required but i know that you know you can read into it a certain sense of obligation of duty towards family towards your father yeah it but at the same time it comes with power. It comes with money. A father who crucially doesn't want you to do that. Exactly. Which is the most interesting thing about the relationship is that like so much of, of like pop culture is the idea of fathers wanting their sons to succeed them and to, to be better them. than them. But 
Well, yeah, but that's it. Like, he does want his son to be better than him. He wants his son to be not like him at all. To be legitimate. He dreams of him being legitimate. Yeah, completely legitimate and being completely assimilated and integrated. And he can't. There is it's impossible. a dynasty there, yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. But it and does... it's an organized crime dynasty. Yeah. But it does suggest yeah. that allure of that sense of family, the potential cohesion that it offers, the support base that it can offer. And I think a lot of people read into that in, in their own family, but just with... But that was Al Ruddy's. That was Al, like when Al Ruddy, like again, the man who won the Oscar for The Godfather and whom we, we very much marginalised in discussions of like who deserves credit for The Godfather. Um, you get the same... Blame like, Evans for that. Yeah, Evans and, and kind of Coppola wrestling and Ruddy being the nice... Ruddy seems to be the genuinely nice guy who's like, hey, it turned out pretty good. That That's all you can ask. Um... But Ruddy, Ruddy's argument when asked, like, what, why is The Godfather so enduring, so successful? He says it's the best movie ever made about family. Um, you know, the pre-Vin Diesel approach. Every Fast and Furious movie <laughs> is just a pale shadow of The Godfather. But yeah, Ruddy's argument that it... I can't argue with that. Yeah, but Ruddy's <laughs> argument that, yeah, at its core, what why The Godfather resonates, why it strikes a chord, is because it's a movie about family. And... To bring it back to what Phil mentioned there, and I think this is kind of important in kind of situating it in its context, I think, you know, there's some interesting points to make about the idea of Michael as a veteran, particularly in the wake of the Vietnam War, particularly in the context of having veterans coming home. And again, not quite having pop culture at a stage where it's entirely comfortable dealing with what it means for Vietnam veterans to come home scarred and kind of altered by the experience. I think you can read that into like Michael's characterization that Andrew mentioned there. But there's a kind of a quote from uh, Tom Santapietro, who wrote The Godfather Effect, um, which is, is well worth seeking out. But he was asked basically like what is it that makes the godfather so successful and so enduring why did it speak to audiences uh in 1972 when it was released and he made similar points to phil and i just like i want to hammer this because i think it's it's interesting in terms of not getting not getting lost in a particular liberal or conservative interpretation but understanding that they're perhaps two sides of the same coin and as andrew said meaning is generative it's it's iterative you 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 produce meaning by processing it um on a sociological level we had been facing the twin discouragements of the vietnam war and watergate so it spoke to this sense of disillusionment that really started to permeate american life at the time i also think the nostalgia factor with the godfather cannot be underestimated because in the early 70s the first two films were 72 and 74 it was such a changing world it was the rise of feminism. It was the era of black power. And what The Godfather presented was this look at the vanishing white male patriarchal society. I think that struck a chord with a lot of people who felt so uncertain in this rapidly changing world. Don Corleone, a man of such certainty that he created his own laws and took them into his own hands, appealed to a lot of people. And I think there is something interesting in that because I know, Phil, you are like one of our gurus when it comes to talking about New Hollywood in the podcast. You talked about Chinatown with us as well, which uh, yeah, personal one of my personal favorite episodes, um, which we don't really reference that much for reasons that I don't think we need to go into here. Um, but one of the interesting things that we've noted in covering these 70s um, movies 
is there's a strange sense of nostalgia that runs through them. A lot of those movies are kind of rooted in nostalgic memories of the 30s and 40s. I mean, we pointed out Bonnie and Clyde was the movie that helped launch um, the kind of the new Hollywood movement, and that was a movie about 30 gangsters. You had things like They Shoot Horses in 1969, uh, Bernardo Bertolucci's The Conformist in 1970, Scorsese's Boxcar Bertha in 72, you know, we mentioned The Godfather, but then like in 1973, you had a glut of movies set in that era you had paper moon dillinger emperor of the north pole and the sting all in 1973 the great gatsby in chinatown in 1974 and then i'm going to do this thing where andrew andrew loves where i just name movies and people are like can i can i keep track of them is he just making them up do our he, do these movies he got a whole action? big list and he says yeah i'm gonna these are all the things all, he's doing the list so i'll give you like an example of maybe three of them like, yeah, and, and, and I'll, I'll pick there. the ones that are most episodes. Yeah, and and people will get the idea. No, yeah, but no, that's not how Darren rolls. Darren's like no, Darren does all 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 data all the time. So in 1975, you had Deep Breath, Capone, Lucky Lady, The Day of the Locust, Hard Times. Funny Lady, Doc Savage, The Man of Bronze, The Hindenburg, The Great Waldo Pepper, The Fortune, Hearts of the West, At Long Last Love, and the near-pornographic inserts, all hitting theatres in 1975. So you had this weird nostalgia that was... People forget about the near-pornographic inserts. Yeah, I mean, they do tend to, you know, it doesn't really kind of get the attention that I think it deserves. Uh, and I'm glad that you shouted that out, Andrew. I really appreciate your your attention and love of film I think history. if you had given three examples, I would have been like, that's just three examples, Darren. That doesn't yeah. represent a pattern at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're forgetting the near-pornographic inserts. Um, yeah. But like, I mean, I boy, in, inserts, I mean, between that and Jaws, it was an interesting <laughs> 1975 for Richard Dreyfuss, wasn't it? <laughs> But like, yeah, but you have this idea that like in the early 70s, like because we do tend to think of nostalgia, like we talk about modern pop and pop culture being overtly nostalgic. Things like Stranger Things, for example, this like constant recycling of existing intellectual properties, the resurrection of things like Ghostbusters, for example, Space Jam, all this stuff that you loved as a kid kind of coming back into fashion. And I find it interesting Ready that... Ready Player One. Yeah. yeah, Ready Player One is just like... There's a... an obvious one I'm surprised you haven't mentioned. Well, I'm not surprised because I know why you haven't mentioned it because you've been down some bad roads of that before. I... <laughs> Could you possibly be referring to some wars that take place in the stars, Phil? But yeah, you have this... Maybe. But you have this... And even like outside of that, you have things like, say, American Crime Story Impeachment. You've got things like Pam and Tommy. Um, You've got like... And Andrew's like, name a third one. Name a third one, Darren. (laughs) Um, Things like I, Tonya, for example. But you have this idea of like going back and recreating the 90s and the 80s in modern pop culture that I find kind of interesting and generates a lot of discussion. Everyone's like, why don't you do... Do you know, I, the re, uh, I I think I've spoken about it, how there's so little kind of early 2000s kind <laughs> nostalgia. of uh, nostalgia. And uh, Modoc did, did um, a whole lot of like, you know, frosted tips <laughs> and um, like just terrible music. <laughs> yeah. um, and Andrew's like, thing. that's why there's no nostalgia yeah. for this era. Um, but, Evanescence all day. Yeah. But like, but like we we oh, opened we opened dear. the podcast about like Jackass Forever. Jackass Forever is an example there as well. But I, I find it interesting that like you go back fifty years 
and people were just as nostalgic for the 30s and 40s by comparison. And The Godfather itself is arguably part of that wave of 70s nostalgia. It's very much like, man, we are living in the 70s. Things are turbulent right now. There's stuff happening in the White House. There's stuff happening in Vietnam. There's a recession going on. Unemployment is soaring. Like, these are very turbulent times. Remember when things were simpler. And I find it kind of interesting that you look at so much of the New Hollywood movement. And obviously, as we point out, these are directors who came up through film school. They're directors who came up like loving movies and experiencing movies and so are making movies that homage the movies that they remember watching in cinemas as kids. But I find it kind of fascinating that, yeah, you go back and in the well, 70s, people were indulging in nostalgia or kind I of like think, yearning. I think it's male nostalgia. They, yes. They, they, okay. they, this is like a... Um, this is a movie that's not kind to like its, its female um characters and 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 i don't think that kind of like makes the movie any um any worse but if it is a nostalgia it's not kind of i can't imagine there being many women watching this movie who's like why why aren't things like that yeah (laughs) like they are in the movie um, why aren't more husbands like carlo or sunny or yeah yeah it's 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 um it's like I can imagine a man watching this movie, and in, in in fact, lots of men do watch this movie and think like, well, I like when Vito picks up Johnny Fontaine and says, "Why don't you be a man?" <laughs> and it's which like, is apparently improvised by Brando because Al Martino was having difficulty acting, and apparently Brando just had enough was and terrific. was just like, "It's an amazing moment." Mm. Yeah. You have Tom Hagen kind of like laughing <laughs> along to it. So many like the the, the Robert Duval, like James Khan. Oh, I love Robert Duval. Uh, James Khan, um, um, he is a like honorary Italian. What? <laughs> <laughs> The the idea was yeah the, like the idea was that he was going to be uh, Michael at one point they had him on the list to play Michael was the thing right and basically so he got bumped down he wanted Sonny and uh, Coppola wanted him for Sonny but he was going to be Michael because they wanted a white Michael they wanted like Robert Redford or they wanted Ryan O'Neill those were like the studio oh those are the could you imagine Ryan O'Neill <laughs> yeah oh good heavens those were and like Laurence Olivier was originally going to be like on the shortlist for The Godfather as well to play the part he was well funny enough I don't think Olivier was so keen because his reps told the production that he was sick which was obviously (laughs) because he made Sleuth the same year Um, Orson Welles was considered now don't tell me you don't want that Don Corleone Ryan O'Neill's agent went to Robert Evans and it was like what's wrong why won't you have Robert, uh, Robert uh, Ryan O'Neill in the movie and is like I was in love with that girl um, she was the best piece of ass I ever had this was the, the context of love story um, yes yeah yeah and- and it happened with Ali McGraw um, on The Getaway while he was making this. Apparently, Evans was so fixated on fixing uh, The Godfather that he sent Ali McGraw off to make like The Getaway. And he was like, I don't really blame her because I sent her to go away with Steve McQueen to shoot on location for three months and I never visited her once. I kind yep. of, I feel like that one's on me, which was a rare moment of introspection from Robert Evans, um, to be fair. <laughs> well, he only had himself to blame for that. Um, but uh, sorry, we're we're making we're, a larger point. Speaking talk- of Ali McGraw, we were talking about the treatment of women in this, we're, yeah, and and nostalgia and kind of male nostalgia in particular and stuff. And it, the, the- it's it's a nostalgia in a with small n, like it's it's looking back. And I mean, I think it's treatment of women. It's 
it's cruel, but at least it's honest. I mean, it's not it's not sugarcoating anything about what might have happened to these women. Like these men, like it, because of the life they're into, the braggadocio, that male, the testosterone fool need to assert yourself is just going to come out in every facet of your life. So watching, especially the scenes with say. Connie and Carlo. Yeah. Sounds like a dog. Yeah. And he's not even in the family. He's just as, uh, trying to assert himself next to Connie, who I suppose he's probably just trying to assert he, himself because he she is one he, of the family. He makes he makes um he makes Santino look good. Like in spite <laughs> of like the first thing <laughs> like we find out about uh, Sonny is so, that he's he's being he's having these affairs. He's like a seemingly lovely wife, but we never see him beating her. <laughs> His and, lovely and, wife, who never, who only talks about how big his penis is, um, and 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 is very disappointed that he's like you know doing the dirt. And but but then we find out. But that then Carlo, he becomes Connie's avenging angel. Carlo is also unfaithful, um, to yeah. to and beats her. Yeah, and beats her, and yeah, he's, he's there's and there's that great scene in their house where in a in a rage, uh, Connie just tears down all the kind of accoutrements and pieces of furniture. I forgive her fixings. for all of that food waste. Food waste. Um. Also, <laughs> ah, a trope. Well done. Also, shout out to Tally Shire because that it was only one camera on that setup and she didn't want them to have to redo all the furnishings again. And she was barefoot in that scene. She went through it and risked cutting her to- her feet up quite badly uh, on all the broken uh, accoutrements. So uh, um. well done her. We should we should note by the way, uh, Shear is obviously uh, Coppola's sister, and again, Coppola does this thing where, and like we talk about this being a movie about family, this is very much a movie about fa- this is a franchise about family for Coppola as well. Coppola is a director who's constantly folding in his relatives into yeah. movies. I mean, even in Peggy's Who Get Marries, you have obviously Nicolas Cage there as well. Um, but you have like obviously the the fact that it's not only does his daughter Sophia appear in Godfather Part Three, she appears here as well. She's the baby who gets baptized, and the idea that like his father. I believe shared an Oscar uh, the following year for sorry the following two years later for Godfather Part Two for Carmen helping work on the yeah yep, uh, uh, working uh, on the soundtrack. Um, if you want, well, one of the best books, of course, on this period of filmmaking is Peter Biskin's E.B. Ryder's Raging Bulls, and in that he describes the Coppola family as kind of living in the shadow of their father Carmine's yes. underperformance in life. He's a f- yeah. flutist by uh, trade and musician, and just didn't appear to scale any great heights and it would appear that the Coppola children including Francis and his sister Talia that they were driven to successes by just seeing their father not be the success he dreamed for himself there's a really interesting story that Coppola tells um, in Mark Seals Leave the Gun Take the Cannoli um, not to jump too far ahead to recommendations but um, which is and by I the way a, a, an example of, of like avoiding food waste yeah, um, Clemenza is our icon here. He, he drinks is. all of that wine. Clemenza is um, such a prince. <laughs> he like, is among men. Throughout the um, whole such thing. a like, pragmatist. And, 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 he, and he's oh, like, don't, great. don't let it stick to the bottom of the pan. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that cooking lesson. I mean, you know. Why don't you, you tell that nice girl like you love her, Michael? Um, <laughs> Clemenza knows where it's at. Everybody should listen to Clemenza. But the, the, the story that Coppola tells about his father is that like he remembered being a kid and watching his father get all these rejection letters uh, from like auditioning for orchestras, from pitching soundtracks, from wanting to compose, all this sort of stuff, and seeing his father getting constantly run down. So what Coppola did was he snuck into the Western Union 
And he faked a telegraph um, telling his father that he had been accepted for this job that he interviewed with, I believe, in California. Um, and apparently, like, running that from the Western Union to the house as a kid, as a nine-year-old kid, to be fair, because he wanted to see his father be happy. Of course... Aww. Yep, of course, his father very quickly discovered that the job was not real and apparently chased his son around the house. Um, But Coppola tells that story. He's like, yeah, all we wanted as our kids was to see our father be happy and to see him succeed because we knew that he wasn't really doing that. And it's kind of heartwarming. I wonder if Coppola sees himself in Michael. Hmm. Also see the commentary on Godfather Part 3 for that. Um, There's a lot of that. Um, But I mean, to to pull back there to to the Clantelia Shear thing, um, and maybe we'll pull back in a second to the treatment of women, because I feel like we're we're inceptioning backwards through tangents on this, which I kind of like. The sequence... Me the first time. The sequence in that house um, where she's assaulted, uh, where she's attacked, is stunningly well directed, and it's a great example of what the godfather does really well which is it's very good at communicating horror and violence and brutality without actually showing you so he chases her through the house and it's horrifying but the most horrifying sequence is the bit when she goes and she hides in the ensuite and he kicks down the door and the door slams shut and you just hear on the soundtrack is it walter murch i think is the sound designer on the movie the sound design is um, incredible in this. the legendary walter murch who of course yeah. would then go on to work with coppola on apocalypse now yeah um but yes they they all you hear from the bathroom are the punches the muffled and screams, the screams and the yeah. from uh, shire it's it is terrifying and it is an example of that violence that is i suppose would be reflective of kind of domestic abuse and violence as it would have been at that time unspoken but when you hear it it's unmistakable when you would come into some contact with it you don't have to see it to get the picture you know what's happening yeah and did maybe i mean maybe you you can say it it, it, it certainly to the film's credit like that 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 it 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 is um i guess demonstrates it the 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 the, the kind of horrificness of it like it shows the kind of the um the a consequence of a lot of 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 this violence when it's in a domestic domestic setting, um, where he, where he, yeah where he, it's a it's a gangster movie so in a sense it's kind of like glorifying, um, gangsters but it's also, um, in in kind of sharp relief it's showing that like the the these people are are not nice necessarily. No. Mm. I mean, well, that that's one of the big things about like the push and pull that I kind of have towards the, the Godfather movies. And I say that like, again, my favorite movie of all time. Um, and I think it's something that does get interesting in the sequel, which we will talk about next week. But I think that like, there is the question of how romantic this movie is about. And I guess this is like pulling back up to talk about the nostalgia, but how, the extent to which this movie is in some ways, whether indulging in nostalgia or slightly deconstructing nostalgia, doing both at once simultaneously, where like this is obviously like the life that the Corleones live is beautiful and fantastic and rich and like joyous. The fact that it opens at the wedding celebration, mm. so you get to see everybody having a good time. Like the and wedding all the celebration, food we see we see yeah. even throughout like um, the the uh, war of the of the kind of five families and especially like the Italias, yeah. you see food yeah throughout it's always you see plentiful. dead bodies and you see food um 
and yeah there 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 is something sensual and joyous um, yeah, even in uh, these terrible about, things even but it, it's also kind of the the um the real kind of um the power of family and those bonds and like like with 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 you you get it with the 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 scene where 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 michael um uh, kills um Salonzo uh, and uh, Malkowski. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, Malkowski, Sterling Hayden. But, yes, uh, hey, yeah, who we will yeah. be who we will be talking about in a couple of weeks when we talk about uh, Doctor Strange Love. Fluids, fluids, <laughs> precious uh, bodily fluids. Uh, um, yeah. And by uh, the way, I love like not to not to bring it back to food waste, but I do love that Mikulski keeps chewing after he's been shot to order to minimize <laughs> food waste. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, well, of course that that link between the, the food and the violence. I mean, that's something that's carried through in so many. Uh, ma- so many mob m- movies from the Sopranos and like Sopranos, Goodfellas, Goodfellas and everything. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but it, it's it's that's kind of um, uh, the romance of the father son relationship. You know, in the sense that um, you kind of um, it's a beautiful thing because you're like, oh, he he's a he he he's avenging his father he's been he's been so like hurt by this person and it, it's 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 there's something kind of um um very cathartic about um that whole experience for us and we as an audience are kind of complicit in it yeah and i mean and i think there's there's also like something interesting in the fact that again to bring it back to nostalgia this was the decade of no fault divorce and stuff like that this was the decade where you arguably had like kind of the emergence of single parent families into mainstream american life and you had the anxiety over that as well and the kind of the breakdown of the conventional you know nuclear family as the cornerstone of american society and all the fears and anxieties tied up in that and i think it's interesting that you look at something like star wars and star wars is this story of generational strife and generational conflict it's a story about how luke needs to vanquish and defeat but then reconcile with his father on his own terms and i find it interesting that the godfather is is much more openly nostalgic where it's like no michael loves his father and his father loves him and they really care for each other and they really advise each other. And that bond that they have with the two of them is amazing. We should shout out, by the way, the final scene between the two of them was apparently ghostwritten by Robert Town, Robert the writer Town. of Chinatown. That's yeah, absolutely correct. Um, um, and it's an astonishing sequel. Like, it's an, like, I watched that last night again, first time I'd seen the movie in five years. And, you know, there, there's been some stuff in my family um, in the past five years, um, like, that kind of raises issues in specters of mortality and things like that. And that sequence was really, it really hit me a different way than it did watching it as a young man. The conversation between Michael and Vito, where Vito is, you know, they, Michael respects Vito. Vito is looking out for Michael, but it's very clear that Vito is not entirely the man that he once was. He's repeating himself. He's getting lost in tangents. His attention is wandering. He's not entirely sure whether he's said what he thought he said or if he needs to say it again um and i found those little touches in the scene so incredibly deeply moving um 
I'm going to say something which I hope might dovetail into some more aspects of conversation, but just coming back to the uh, one last point on the film's treatment of women. Um, the film has a lot more, the film itself has a lot more sympathy for the women than most of the male characters, in that they're always presented yeah. as the most beautiful, colourful things in any scene. You see in the opening wedding scene, which is one of the most bright and beautiful scenes in the whole thing, and of course, it's the one with the most female characters in it. But when Keaton, Diane Keaton, walks in and she's in this yes. orange dress, and it's the most beautiful, eye catching thing, and you know, your attention is drawn to her. And, and that I think, you know, opening with something like a wedding, or at least one of the opening scenes being a wedding, like most people will have been at some kind of big bash like this. And it's a wonderful scene, like. The opening sequence, beginning with uh, Sera in the meeting with the Don in the office, and yeah. the wedding and every other meeting that the Don has, um, it's just under half an hour. But that half an hour does so much to establish so many characters. It's absolutely fantastic way of convey of introducing so many people that we're going to get to know over this film and the two subsequent films. Um, absolutely beautiful like it feels organic it's in a setting that we all understand it's a party it's a family occasion and we get to see these people in a moment of relative happiness and well yeah before it before the plot hits the ground running proper just to bring it back to again to the, to the women thing first of all um i'm really excited we actually do have like female guests in the next two episodes so i'm quite looking forward to unpacking that in a bit more depth there um, what I did find interesting coming back to The Godfather after we did our Summer of Scorsese, which naturally stretched into Autumn and Winter of 2019, <laughs> we talked a lot there about like Scorsese's women roles and kind of like the extent to which, you know, they're underwritten or the way in which they're kind of more nuanced or more delicate that they're traditionally given credit for. And I was actually quite surprised going back and watching The Godfather that like how much Goodfellas benefits from, you know, Lauren Bracco or how much Casino benefits from Sharon Stone. And kind of missing missing that here and again yeah. i don't think it, i don't think it's a knock against the film uh i think the film is saying things that are you know very particularly male focused very male oriented and i think there's room for that in pop culture but i do think i was quite struck by that going back and re-watching it was i'd always kind of i'd always remembered Kay's condemnation of michael or Kay's observance or Kay's watching even that sequence of Kay at the end where she's staring through the door as being more powerful or more judgmental more like the the Anna Paquin character in The Irishman and I know that that becomes a bigger thing when you get to part two but I, I was kind of I was a little bit surprised on rewatching it no, uh, I, that I, I think in this film like it does I think it goes to show especially like that final look from Keaton right into the camera as the door closes like she's like she's powerless. She's absolutely in the in, yeah. the in the face of the force of the mob. Oh yeah, like I mean, it's like it's like the thing, you know, uh, like the thing of course famously has no female characters, and it's just except for arguably the thing itself. You could argue the thing itself is the you female could. character, um, and it becomes a movie about male spaces being intruded by female characters and males reacting to it. Whereas in The Godfather, the females don't get even get that chance because they're either killed outright or they're going to be overwhelmed by the power that surrounds them like it's not a world for them like Kay's role in Michael's life is ultimately to be to bear his children and even then as we learn in part two she doesn't do that willingly well she eventually leaves she like she eventually leaves because it's not her world he's not willing to share it with her yeah yeah um, like because we, she has yeah it's not we, to jump too far ahead but yeah we don't we don't learn much about 
um, Carmela Corleone in the first movie. We see we see a good bit of her, and we get the sense that um, she is like a um, a happy person. We don't see much of Vito with um, her interacting with, with her. her. True. Yeah. Um, but we imagine that it's a a a a, a good marriage. Well, there's no reason to suspect it's not, but no. Um, I think again, uh, the like I think the difference say between her and Kay is that she's like she's Italian or American as well, so she's probably more familiar with what this life entails than Kay, who Darren, as you observe, she's more waspish, um, and as such was perhaps emblematic of Michael's attempts to extricate himself from the life, but. Rather than her saving him from it, he drags her into it. And whatever kind of spark or hope that he that he might have seen in her, just completely gets overwhelmed by his new his newfound role as the Don. Like that's just when she thought she was out. Yeah, he he tries to pull her back in. Um, but like, and and that's kind of the the thing I want to raise or want to ask because we we kind of we talked about nostalgia and we talked about how it's a male centered nostalgia. Is there, a, like, this is the thing with the first one. I think the second one is a lot more explicit. I think the second, I think the God, not to tip my hand about the conversation next week, but I think The Godfather Part 2 is one of the great screw you, you misunderstood me sequels, uh, where it's very much like you watched the movie and you maybe didn't get the point the Coppola wanted you to get. And whether that's your fault or his fault, he's going to make it very clear the second time around. But with The Godfather, is there this sense of, some criticism buried within the nostalgia, um, some idea that the past wasn't as romantic or as idealized as we want to remember or think it was. Well, the fact that it's the fact that like it's a gangster movie set in the 30s, but we're seeing blood and we're seeing domestic violence and we're seeing like the shots of like blood from Mo Green's eyeballs coming out. The fact that Michael is tainted by this. And and again, I think The Godfather Part Two is very much a you watch the end of The Godfather and you thought Michael was the hero. Um, the Godfather Part 2 is like, no, no, he's not. He has, he has lost everything in doing this. Um, in this thing, in this like moment at the end of the movie of The Godfather where Michael executes all of his enemies in one fell swoop and you were cheering in your chair because it's a boss sequence and it's edited beautifully and it's the triumphant moment. The Godfather Part 2 really feels like, no, the, the point of that sequence was to tell you that he had lost his soul. It's the ironic juxtaposition of him claiming to renounce Satan while embracing Satan like a close friend. And like, is is there a criticism? On- when he puts his finger in the well at the back of the <laughs> church and goes... <laughs> yeah, that was enough of a clue. I'm um, an absentee like- landlord! <laughs> <laughs> Look, but don't touch. Touch, <laughs> but don't taste. <laughs> taste, but don't swallow. Um, now there are lines that sound better as Grandpa Simpson. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> But like, is 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 that is there some criticism of nostalgia and kind of nostalgic fantasy baked in here, or is it just pure nostalgia? That that's the question I want to ask you guys. I no, I I couldn't see this pure nostalgia. Like, I think the, I would like to think that the blood, additional bloodshed and things like that alone might convey that, but I don't know. It's I, I, I just find it very hard to see this as any kind of heroic story, like uh, as far as I'm concerned, like it is a fall from grace story in one way or another, like 
Michael has hope. He has potential. Uh, but it's going on a... Oh, I don't know. I just th- I just think that anybody who sees this as any kind of hopeful story or Michael being the the hero of it, quote unquote, is um, I find that very adolescent. Well, I th- yeah, I, I mean, I suppose the difficulty is how beautiful it is. Yes, you know that that you want to kind of live in this world with them because of of how gorgeous stylish and how gorgeous and how lovely and how perfect colors of everything and it's whether whether they're there in brooklyn or whether they're in um corleone in 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 sicily um it's it there's a real kind of um and i mean we should actually by the way just to just to illustrate this idea of like how the godfather is embraced as like an aspirational text um it's worth noting that like Nora Ephron's You've Got Mail in 1998. By the way, we pointed out, I think, on Goodfellas, Nora Ephron's married to uh, Pelegi, Nicholas Pelegi, which is great. Um, the writer, obviously, of Goodfellas. Um, and, but, like, she so, described... Was she also... She was also married to... Uh, was it Bob Woodward as well? Really? There is a, there is a connection there, I think. Um, but, like, there, like I, she describes, like... In, in You've Got Mail, it's like, yeah, The Godfather is the Bible for guys. It's the your text for guys. Um, in, like, The Atlantic in 2013, um, in coverage of debates over American involvement in Syria, Graham Allison asked, what would The Godfather do uh, as a piece of foreign criticism? Uh, in 2009, two U.S. foreign policy analysts published a book called The Godfather Doctrine. Um, John C. Holtzman and A. Weiss Mitchell argued that the U.S. after 9-11 faced a choice analogous to one that confronts the Corleone family following the shooting of its dawn. One camp are the liberal institutionalists, who follow the lead of adoptive brother Tom Hagen. They believe the old order still holds and negotiation is the answer. Opposite them stand the hawks of neoconservatism, who, like Sonny Corleone, believe that a massive show of force is the only way to retain the top spot in the new landscape. Finally, there are realists like Michael, who understand that it's only the combination of strength, judiciously deployed, and patient diplomacy that will bring lasting security. But you have things like, there's like UK politicians who instruct all new staffers to follow the example of Amerigo Bonacera, the undertaker who opens the novel. Novel, the moral of his story is that the right favor to ask of someone is the favor that they can do and they can do well. Um, you have like political journalists who will say like fast talking aides, whether in Westminster or Washington, will likely identify a weak link in the campaign team as Frito, for example. <laughs> so, Fre- like, Fre- I, Fre- Fredo, Fredo. Uh, the the like is, is um, I feel bad for the cartoon frog. The, um, <laughs> My association. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really want a Fredo <laughs> bar now. Yeah, I think um, I might have one downstairs. I, I, we possibly ate them all. Um, we got like <laughs> we got we got sweets for last like um, uh, Halloween, and uh, no children arrived because because nobody yes, does trick or treating uh, pandemic anymore. and yeah yeah exactly. Um, plus, we live in the middle of nowhere. But um, yeah, anyway, the, the, the I I I want to correct myself. It was Carl Bernstein? Ah, there you go. Um, but. Um, I think though, and I mean, like, I mean, obviously, like the mob as well has venerated the Godfather as well. Like, you have like Frank Friel of Philadelphia PD's organized crime division saying that every raid, every raid of a mafia house found the Godfather VHS. Sorry, sorry, Phil. I think though, you know, 
the question you're kind of coming to a chicken and egg question there. Like you're saying the that you know political minds might see something analogous in the Godfather in how they operate, but are they are they referencing the Godfather? But or is the Godfather in turn maybe referencing what it might perceive as certain structures, unspoken or otherwise? within certain institutions. And this comes back to what I was saying earlier about the potential criticisms that it has from maybe a more leftist point of view about uh, about how institutions work uh, at the time it came out. Um, you know, like, they're... Like, this might be the kind of... Like, these characters might be kind of archetypes of what might be seen within uh, certain institutions. You no, know, you'll have your hotheads, you'll have your weak links, and you'll have your pragmatists. And I think that's true of most any institution you care to think of um just maybe that the godfather perhaps put faces and names to these things that people can refer to and use um you know it doesn't exist in a vacuum so i i, I think i think the godfather probably just put a lot of things into a structure and into a way that people can refer to them and use them yeah in that sense no, no, I was just going to say that, like, the obvious kind of scene is, um, or he said, could, couldn't you be like a, he's saying his father is just like any other powerful man, um, like a, like a senator or a president. And she says, um, well, senators and presidents don't kill people. And his now response is, naive, now, yeah, now he's being naive. Which is, which is, which is, and it's very pointed, and it almost kind of doesn't belong in the movie, um. But it, but it, 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 it makes sense in terms of like Joe Kennedy, yeah. I guess. And uh, um, also, it's coming from a soldier, so you know he's yeah he knows well that uh, that people in power will send people to uh, to do their bidding. One way or another. I mean, yeah, again, it's it's that question Andrew raised, which is like, is there a difference between what Pacino is doing for his family and what the American government asked him to do for them? I mean, it's a line cut from the movie. It doesn't appear in the movie, but you have like that moment where Clemenza is talking about like his service overseas and they're talking about like taking out the Turk and he compares it to taking out Hitler at Munich. He says, you should have killed Hitler when it started. That should have been the thing to do. And so that is in a version. It's in the version that I saw. Oh, oh no, yeah, sorry. He's saying like, yeah. Uh, we was all proud of you being the hero. Yeah. yeah, but there's a there's it's there's a sequence in the book where Vito laments his son going off to kill because he's like he's killing for a government. He's why why is he killing for the government who's never done anything for him? Um, you know why I understand a man's need to shed blood, but I don't understand why you would kill a stranger for a stranger. Um, which is kind of which is a, like arguably one of the core kind of themes. Uh, of the movie and again justifying his own work yes yeah um and i find that kind of interesting as well like i mean and again we should probably talk very briefly about like the the intersection between this and the actual mob which is fascinating because so much of the history of the godfather is really just the irishman um so much of like what happens in the irishman is like the behind the scenes making of the godfather so for example very famously the italian anti-defamation league headed by joe colombo protested the godfather because they felt that it would set back screen portrayals of italian americans by half a century colombo had managed to petition like hollywood to get the word mafia banned from like shows like fbi for example um apparently and again this is the story 
that uh, and it's told by the guy who played um, Carlo, um, who is Gianni Rousseau, who was apparently by all accounts never an actual gangster, but uh, quite associated kind of with the lower levels of gangsters and would have known many of the New York gangs as well. And he's talked about how, for example, the Cinemobile, uh, which was the the bus in which they carried all the film equipment and which they could like edit negatives and stuff like that, develop negatives, was literally stolen from production um, and then returned two hours later as a warning from the Italian-American community. You had things like Columbo saying, yeah, you can't film in this neighborhood without our permission. Um, and you had things like people calling into the office threatening to threatening to kill or to shoot people. Apparently, one of the entrance gates to the Paramount lot was blown up in the middle of the night with a box of dynamite with a short fuse attached to the gate, the resulting explosion reverberating around the neighborhood. So apparently, the, like Al Ruddy had to sit down with Joe Colombo and the anti-Italian, uh, the sorry, the Italian Anti-Defamation League and figure out how to make this work. And the way that they made this work was Columbo said, first of all, I want you to delete the word mafia from the script. And it was great because like, apparently Ruddy said, look, I will give you the script and you'll read it and you can tell me what we need to change. Apparently he gave it to Columbo. Columbo read the first page. He's like, what does this mean? Fade in. What does this mean? What's this got to do? And he's like, okay, this is going to be a long, long conversation. <laughs> apparently the only time the word mafia was used in the original script was during the conversation with the studio head. When the studio head is referring to using a variety of ethnic slurs um, to refer to Tom Hagen. And apparently that, that batch of original slurs also included the word mafia. Apparently all it took to get like the Italian Anti-Defamation League to sign off on the movie was to just delete the word mafia from the middle of all those like really terrible uh, racial slurs. And they're like, yep, yeah, we will sign off on this entirely. But we also want you to give jobs to our members. Um, and those who are associated with Joe Colombo were typically associated with organized crime. So, for example, um, you have things like the, the character of Luca Brazzi. That's exactly um, the kind of comment that the, <laughs> yeah. uh, that the uh, Anti-Defamation League is, is, is trying to avoid, <laughs> Darren. <laughs> um, that is a very... Fir- I mean, we, it- we, we have listened to the 250 and, and we are very disappointed <laughs> with, the- <laughs> with their commentary. My bed's um, right they- over there. I'm not looking at it. They use... They- <laughs> They use the word ma- they use the word mafia. They could have just used the word syndicate instead. Um, the family, but yeah, like Lenny Mont- Montana, for example, who was a wrestler who played the role of Luca Brazzi, was apparently a mob in like a mob enforcer at one point. You had things like Gianni Rousseau, who was apparently hustling on the film set. So Andrew, again, I I don't want to like you know make assumptions about your preferences and things that you will enjoy hearing, but apparently the mob arranged to sell food to supply food to the production so they sold crates of soda that they bought for one dollar and 17 cent to paramount for seven dollars a pop and the wedding cake you know the gigantic wedding cake that you see at the wedding yes which just looks amazing paramount paid seven thousand dollars for that (laughs) apparently rousseau convinced a local bakery to bake it for free for publicity you better hope there was no food waste there. Not at that price. <laughs> Just kind of, and like apparently pocketed the difference as well. Like El Latieri, who played like Salonzo the Turk, was married to a famous gangster's a sister as well. And like a, 
like it's it's apparent like all this all these people were heavily kind of integrated with one another which is absolutely fascinating anyway sorry sorry cut you off there. yeah sorry uh just um inter- there's other stories like that as well um al martino who plays uh, johnny fontaine um he was he was initially hired uh in the role but he was then dropped in favor of another singer victor moan but uh he had connections to the mobster russell buffalino who actually had yeah. his connections start a a smear campaign in the press against the production played by joe pesci and the irishman exactly that's, that's the yeah. exactly yeah. and uh so after that the jews are ne- now whether choose that negative publicity or not but uh damone eventually dropped out of the role and so martina was rehired only to get slapped by marlon brando <laughs> <laughs> speaking of which speaking of which uh lenny uh, montana plays um Luca Brasi, um, you know how he's so nervous in his meeting with the Don. That was uh, Montana being nervous of Brando for real because, you know, it's Marlon Brando. So uh, Coppola actually worked that into the script. And so before that scene, he introduced a scene where he's actually rehearsing his lines uh, yes. just to make the nervousness work. That's the, that's, the, that's Lenny Montana rehearsing his lines. And apparently um, James Caan was a notorious prankster on set. <laughs> And apparently he talked he talked to Montana and he said, like, look, if you want to break the ice of Brando, there's one way to do it. Come here with me. And they go backstage and they so, you know, and then, you know, they come on and they're ready to do the take and uh, they're doing the conversation and uh, it's not going well. And, and Brando is clearly getting deeply frustrated with this guy who can't act opposite him. And then right on cue, Montana sticks out his tongue and on his tongue is some surgical tape. And on that surgical tape written uh, by James Caan is beep, Brando. And apparently Brando breaks his crap laughing and just kind of rolls over. And apparently the set is, is fine after that. Apparently the next day they come back and they're doing another take. And Brando is having the conversation. He's delivering his lines entirely on cue. And he sticks out his tongue at the end and it says, beep, Lenny, beep, um, which is quite <laughs> nice as well. Like there's a story about like Brando, consummate prankster on set, being like during that sequence where they're taking the Don home on the stretcher. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently he made a point to load the stretcher with bricks so it laid like 40 or 50 pounds on top of his own weight um, so they had like the, the actors pretending to carry him upstairs struggling as Coppola continued to film for his own kind of amusement just to see it go um, but there's this the famous story about the, the beef that happened between Rossi who plays Carlo sorry who, um, and Sonny James Caan where apparently some of the now obviously you know as people have pointed out not all of the punches and kicks connect uh, most obviously in the wide shots yeah. certainly don't no. the one yeah. technical hitch we will all acknowledge in that film but um in the close-ups you'll notice that they they, they don't seem to miss as often in the close-ups no. and apparently according to, to rossi what had happened was he had gone out and again this is all the Godfather, take this with a grain of salt. This is all storytelling out of ta- out of school and all this sort of stuff. Uh, Rossi, who has published memoirs about like his Hollywood gangster life, he was apparently out on the town like with uh, Can, and they were at an actual gangster's 80th birthday party. And Can came up to him. And he's like, "Look, you got to meet this guy. You got to meet this guy himself and his daughter. They're back here. They want to talk about the Godfather. They're very excited. You know, you got to come back, shake some hands. It'll be fantastic." And Rossi goes back and he says, uh, "Don, I'm pleased to meet you. Uh, pleased to be here with your daughter." Uh, and you know, point to the 18 year old girl sitting next to him. And and Rossi apparently then discovers that in fact the 18 year old girl sitting next to the 80 year old man was his girlfriend, was the Don's girlfriend, mm. um, leading to an awkward situation in which Rossi is is nearly beaten to an inch of his life 
But Rossi then explains that this was Khan's practical joke, which leads to Khan getting into hot water with the gangsters. And apparently that is, according to Rossi, why Khan took it out on him the following day when they were shooting the actual scene in the street. Why Khan apparently made contact with him several times during that sequence. And that is kind of his theory there. And also why Khan improvised uh, hitting him with the dustpan lid. The dustpan yes. lid. Yeah, that's uh, an improv. Uh, some of the, actually, some of the best moments of famous scenes and lines in the film are kind of added so you of course the image of brando cradling the cat that's because the cat wandered in on the set um but also uh leaves the gun take the cannoli that was yeah that was an ad lib by uh, uh richard um, castellano who played Comenta. and it's such a great line because it so encapsulates the themes of the movie this being a movie about family it's not about violence it's about family as well uh, it's about food god damn it. it is all about food it is like this is why it's the second best movie of all time on the 250 and Andrew mentioned earlier how gorgeous this looks. I can't believe we've gone this far without talking about Gordon Willis, um, who's been described as the Rembrandt of Hollywood. The Prince of Darkness. Yes. Responsible for giving the movie its distinctive look. And it is it is absolutely gorgeous. And you can't understate that because um, frequently, frequently he and Coppola came to blows over the look of even individual shots. Um, There's like all kinds of different stories. One of my favorites is uh, in the uh, montage with the assassinations. At one point you see uh, Richard Castellano as Clemenza having to climb stairs. And there's a story that in one incident, uh, one fight between uh, Coppola and Willis got heated and uh, Castellano stepped in in defense of Willis. And as revenge, uh, he had the, Coppola had the, notably overweight Castellano have to do that take like 10 times so he was clearly breathing quite heavily and laboredly uh, so um, don't get in a fight between two clearly driven creatives uh, trying to make a Ca- point Castellano was like oh I was really thankful for, for you to, all that to, cardio to all, 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 all that cardio I, I, I thought I'd never make it to the gym. But I'm sorry, I, have I you seen really Have you seen those shots? It. The man looks ready to collapse. <laughs> <laughs> he he gets stuff done. He does. <laughs> I mean, I love Clemenza. I mean, it's like he he is the man who he's so practical. Like he is the yeah. guy you want on your side. Like he avoids food waste, he rubs out your enemies, and he cooks on hell of a bolognese. I love, by the way, I love, by the way, that like the like the motivation for Tessio betraying Michael is Michael understanding it's the smart move. Like <laughs> Tessio is always smarter. It's like the Clemenza. What makes Clemenza so adorable is that he's kind of stupid, uh, which I kind of love about him as a character. Oh, poor Clemenza. He's not stupid. He's wise. He lives to the end. <laughs> there. He? He, he does, but he doesn't come back for the sequel, um, which I kind of love. It's like everybody but him and Brando. Which is kind of amazing. Like, that's a great club to find yourself in. You and Brando are the only two who don't make it back for the sequel. Although, to be fair, there's a lot of characters in this who die. uh, But uh, thankfully, because some of the actors actually die between one and two. Most notably, uh, Joe Lettieri uh, in the role of Salazzo and uh, Richard Conte, who plays Barzini. So those characters, of course, assassinated uh, during the film. Uh, Rosini, of course, is the guy who falls halfway down the church steps in the uh, montage of the assassinations. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I think Letieri died in 75, just after 2 came out. So, But yeah, um, there's a few characters that don't return, but uh, then again, a lot of people die in this thing. Yeah, you you, you, you get when, um, when Paulie has um, 
um, is ill, you're like, oh, it's when whenever you introduce that somebody is <laughs> ill, like uh, early in a movie, you know that they're going to die soon. <laughs> so it's like. <laughs> speaking of speaking of Paulie, uh, some of those you know some of the different casting choices uh, they worked out quite well because uh, Paulie was originally supposed to be played by uh, Robert De Niro. Um, yes, and he was cast at oh, the time, wow. and he was cast at the time the Coppola was trying to get uh, Pacino to play Michael, uh, but um, he was committed to a different role. Uh, MGM's the gang who couldn't shoot straight. So, but exactly. like the 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 issue was like Coppola had wanted Pacino. The studio refused to sign off on Pacino because he was a nobody and they were convinced that he couldn't act. Um, and Pacino was convinced he was uncomfortable. Like, like it's amazing. Apparently, Coppola, Coppola shot rehearsal footage with all of these actors, like the entire cast that he wanted. And he showed it to Charlie Bloodhorn, who was running Paramount at the time. And he was like, no, no to all of these people. And then over the next two years, Coppola gradually had to like get all of them back. But yeah, by the time he managed to convince the studio that Pacino was somebody worth keeping, Pacino had already signed to do uh, the gang that couldn't shoot straight at MGM. Um, and apparently they swapped De Niro for Pacino in that movie. Yeah, uh, P- uh, Paramount uh, pressured the studio... MGM. Which other studio? MGM, yeah. So they pressured MGM to uh, take uh, De Niro and sophomore Pacino, and uh, history was made. It worked out quite well for both of them. It did need, well, yeah, it managed to get both of them back for the next one, which is striking. I mean, just very quickly in terms of like Willis and his cinematography, one of the things that's interesting about his cinematography is that it's so precise, it's lit so carefully. That it re- requires, well, first of all, the camera can't move much, so it has to look very static. And I think, like, the the style has been described as a tableau. That's apparently what Coppola wanted. So it all has this yeah. look, again, we mentioned, like, you know, Rembrandt. It looks like it looks like a Renaissance kind of painting. It's got this kind of, like, classical look to it. And apparently, again, this was a cause of much frustration on set. I mean, very famously, uh, Willis would complain that his actors, like, couldn't, be where he needed them they to be. Hit their marks. That's yep. that's it exactly. Because if you were out by an inch one direction or another, you would be completely in shadow. Right. And I think his line his line was, yeah, you know, what most of this cast think that marks are a currency in Germany. That was apparently <laughs> like Willis's line. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, like there's one scene where I think I think it might have been actually in the Don's office where, or actually no, no, I tell a lie. It was in the uh, restaurant where the assassination takes place, and Pacino takes one wrong turn into a into a corridor and actually ended up tripping and falling because the place was so damn dark. And yeah, this it was a tricky one for somebody like Willis to work in because he clearly had a a vision for what he wants to do. Like you said, this uh, Rembrandt influenced kind of brown ochre look. Um, to suggest the 30s. You know, you see something similar, in, well, of course, in part two, but also in things like Chinatown. Um, but uh, it's, cripes, it's beautiful. What's, what's, yeah, Isn't it just I mean, like, there's a wonderful line where Willis admits that he may have gone a bit too far with underexposure in some of those scenes. Then he adds, I think Rembrandt went too far a couple of times as well. Uh, <laughs> which... Like, it's not... It, it's not every day that somebody says something like that can actually get away with it. But I mean, Gordon Willis, uh, again, look, you know, the proof is in the pudding. Look at this film. Look at all the president's men. Like, these amazing films that he shot. And they are just so distinct. Quick question for you, Phil. Go on. How many Oscars do you think Willis was nominated for over the course of his career? I should know this. I know he was nominated for this and part two. Oh, nope. I'm going to guess. What? No, he was only nominated. Wasn't he nominated for two? Part two. Nope. 
I'm almost right. What? No. I'm thinking of Dean Tavalaris production design. Yeah. One. Only nominated for an Oscar twice. Okay. Once for Woody Allen's 1984 newsreel lark Zelig. Mm, okay. Once again for the superior Godfather film, 1991's Corleone Cody, The Godfather Part 3. Oof. So yeah. Um, like, I, an incredible career, you, and it's one of those... Th- I mean, I would have... I sh- I'm shocked. I should have... Uh, no, I was mistaken for Tower Lars. Um, and, of course, and again, the production design, because this... Like, nothing yeah. looks out of place. Like, there's so many things where they're actively keeping out any modern elements. Uh, famously, the sh- the assassination of Sonny at the toll booth is a massive... Um, there's a, uh, a massive poster uh, advertising billboards in the background. That's to hide a modern building. Yeah, which is again, and and like I love that they they erected the toll booth. You can see it; it's in the middle of nowhere, which is great. It's it's an airstrip, like it's set it's set as a, a toll booth, but it's an airstrip. And um, also, of course, that's probably the most famously bloody scene in the entire thing, with the exception of the horse's head. And uh, there was, I think, he gets said two oh nine. It's our obligatory Robocop reference. Uh, apparently, like, according to Khan, it was some sort of, um, like, record for the number of squibs ever placed on an actor. Until. And he's described... Some, yeah. one, of the, <laughs> one of the technicians told him that on the set. He's, and he just looked at him and said, Yeah, Duffy, you can tell me that right now? <laughs> well, yeah, like, and, and the thing is, like, the force of a squib outwards is like a... It's basically like a bullet. It's a little so explosion, you need, yeah. You, you, it's a little explosion. So you need to be making sure that nothing is pointing towards anything else when a squib goes off. So your knees can't be facing inwards or you will, like, kneecap yourself. Um, so he was like, yeah, it's like a choreography. It's incredible. Um, and again, we, we kind of shouted out already, but the sound design and this is amazing. I love how incredibly kind of subjective it is in terms of placing you inside the character's head that sequence with michael and the turk at the restaurant um which is the the train of the sound of the l but even the fact that like the conversation the italian conversation between the turk and michael is not subtitled because it's not you you get it but you don't need it but it's also not important because it's just words like michael's not interested in what's actually being said so you as an audience member aren't as well which is absolutely amazing he's there just to do one thing he's there to kill these guys yeah and it's all mounting pressure and like the fact that that was apparently the scene that convinced paramount that like coppola should maybe not be fired it was like that's when they saw that sequence edited together they were like, yeah, we got something here. Uh, two things to note about that scene. Uh, me, where you say that Khan had some interesting work to do with the squids in his scene. Uh, Sterling Hayden had something padded on the front of his forehead, an artificial forehead placed there, and underneath it was a squib. So that's how that scene was done. And it's that I've, it's I've been still... shot in the uh, forehead <laughs> before, as in like true true movie magic. The, oh, guy, okay. the guy who did um, like Labyrinth another kind of um, uh, Hollywood movies kind of do, does special effects makeup. He was in Sligo and did a workshop um, for the uh, youth theatre. And uh, that, that, that was the effect that I had. They film, they film me getting shot in the head. And generally the way they do it is that they, they'll, they'll, they'll have like a, a floss kind of, um, which will, which will kind of pull off um a kind of a, a skin color kind of like a um kind of plasticine tab like on your forehead where just kind of like pulls off and like the blood just kind of yeah, yeah. and they did they, 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 the, the way to do it as well is like with an edit 
where they they, oh, they have a shooting out and then and then you apply the the blood and stuff. Same yeah. thing, and it's a simple trick. By goodness, it's it's effective. It's visceral. They all, you feel every blood, every bullet hit in this film. Absolutely, there's so much of this movie that I like felt like where my heart it's, is beating. And it's a, um, and that's quite something for a film that's fifty years old this year. I made the mistake of watching this with surround sound on last oh, night in my house with my neighbours. Your neighbours must have loved that. Well, I mean, like, like it's it's fine for most of it, but then it gets really loud. So, like, during the sunny sequence, I had to scramble for the remote. Because um, I think I think Andrew remembers when we covered Left Behind, the Nicolas Cage movie, there was a there was an incident with my neighbours um, with the sound effects over that. So I was very <laughs> nervous about something like that happening again. Yeah. So I had to desperately scramble for the remote as Sonny dances at the end of a string. Um, my Just my other point on that scene. Um the L train, the sound of the train yes. going through just that ratchets up the tension so masterfully. Uh, ironically enough, where that set, uh, like, of course, that was shot on a soundstage, but where the film is set, there actually is a train line going by. So it fits remarkably well. And and again, like the fact that you have in Coppola's notes, he's writing Hitchcock and it's very Hitchcockian. You're like that you're peering over the toilet stall and you're watching Michael like put his head, his hands against his head as if to shut out the noise. And it's very much like it's it's very emote. You're in that space with him. You're feeling it. As Andrew said, your heart's beating. It's incredibly visceral. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just phenomenal filmmaking. Yeah, it's like something like the bomb in Touch of Evil. Like you're aware something is there. But where is it going to appear? Are you, you know. Can you feel it? Can you get it? He has to get it. like you're no matter what you think of Michael, whether you see him as a hero or just a disrupted soul, but you're with him, you're invested in him. And it's kind of one of the things that I think Pacino himself felt very strongly about when it came to Oscar nominations. He was nominated along with Duval and uh, Khan for Best Supporting Actor. Yes. And he's nominally the main character, except uh, Brando got the actor uh, nomination instead, even though uh, for a film that's nearly three hours on, he's in it. Uh, less than an hour which yeah. is quite something uh, well again category fraud um, yeah, well, and again star power like that's that's the way it works unfortunately but this was Brando well, that's how it goes he was 47 years old Brando was only 47 years old here which is astounding and already lo- was bloating and looked far older um, well, I, I, I think he had stuff um, that he he was using for that, like that that he had like cotton buds or something. Well, even without it, I mean, if you watch him in other things around this time, like Last Tango in Paris, like he looks older than that. He looks at least late fifties. He's he's aging himself more older than he used to be. Um, but yes, he did stuff uh, cotton wool and such things under his cheeks to give him that look and to help develop the voice of the character. That very distinctive, which is apparently an impersonation of mob figures, even though it's something that's become as you know more infamous than any real figure it's just this performance in that famous <laughs> delivery i thought it was interesting how um michael then has the the broken jaw yes and it's almost kind of like um it, it takes on the same sort of like look and and, and sound, sound yeah. yeah as as his father yeah and the fact that he comes into the studio and he he take like he comes into the office and he takes command of the office in the same way his father did because that's the moment where the camera really pushes in on him and again like the fact that the climax of the movie is he becomes the godfather and it's like yeah so he is literally becoming his father yeah, yeah history yeah. repeats itself yeah and uh, Pacino for those scenes he actually wired his jaw shut to uh, get the maximum effect yeah I can see why studios were maybe not too keen on this guy um <laughs> Yeah, uh, although he was cheap. Uh, the actors were, were actually didn't get all that much. He, Duval, Khan, Keaton, they all got 35000 
a piece for this, which even back then was not a lot. And uh, Brand, of course, got more. Um, but uh, yeah, they, of course, went on to greater things, not least acclaim and awards, glory, and whatever else. Uh, famously, of course, this was the film for which um, Brando won the Best Actor Oscar and famously rejected it by sending an actress dressed as a Native American to re- to deliver a speech. He nominally rejected it for the to you know as a protest of the treatment of Native Americans in film and in general. Um, of course, a lot of people saw it as a, a bit of a piss take and maybe plays into the idea of Brando as just a, you know, a joker and uh, somebody who just felt like stirring beep, up that because beep. he was Marlon Brando who was going to stop him. Well, to be fair, he did also send a representative of the Native American peoples to the premier, a different uh, representative. I don't have the name to hand. Uh, the premier is interesting. Jim Thomas. Uh, apparently that was a last minute decision by him. Um but apparently yeah, I, never, they got... I never I never knew I, I, I never thought of that as being insincere. That, yeah, uh, I, 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 I think I, a lot of people felt it at the time, not least because I don't think the lady who the actress who went to the Oscars was herself Native American. I don't think so. I think she was I think her name was Cruz. Yeah, but it was but it was Jim Thomas who he sent to the premiere. Um, and apparently and again, this is one of those interesting things where. Thomas had apparently been asked to, like Brando had told him to bring a congregation to bring other Native Americans with him. But because Thomas had never been to a premiere, he just described it as a film screening. And who was going to travel halfway across the country to go to see a movie in a cinema? Yeah. Um, um, despite the big buzz that there was for The Godfather when it came out, and like you said, lines around the block, uh, the premiere was a, a, bit, a slightly lower key affair, not least because Brando didn't attend himself. Uh, but they did get one distinctly voiced rotund man to turn up, namely Henry Kissinger. Yes, oh, and yeah. another connection between this and Doctor Strange Love, right there with Sterling Hayden as yeah. well. Uh, yeah. And of course, as famously described by uh, Peter Biskind in uh, his book, um, Ali McGraw was there, and somebody described uh, Evans described him as her being there on my shoulder, on my arm, all the while thinking of Steve McQueen's cock. That's Robert Evans, ladies and gentlemen. Classy. Uh, well, I mean, and again, like all of this is like you talk about like Brando even making more money than the rest of them as well. Like Brando uh, was so in debt that like when the movie came out, he sold his back end points uh, for 100 grand to help him pay off his tax debt. Um, they did the math. and They figured that would have brought him at least 11 million dollars in the film's first year had he kept them. Um, which um, is insane. Yeah, but it's a it's a dirty business. <laughs> um, I love I love um, like Vito's real kind of like Nancy Reagan thing. Uh, <laughs> oh, with the drugs. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's like um, yeah, uh, and he o- overall throughout the movie, he's very much kind of like I'm. Um, I'm an upstanding uh, citizen. I'm, yeah, I'm not, yeah, get, yeah. I'm not getting the kids hooked on drugs. He, yeah, he says like, like early on about about uh, uh, He's he's like we're, he, we're not he, criminals, despite we, what this no, man. Th- we're not killers, we're not murderers, despite, yeah. despite of what this undertaker, <laughs> this undertaker says, thing. which is such a great line because it's like the undertaker would know. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he, he, um, he this undertaker yeah. has processed some of your handiwork. You know that that um, uh, yeah, and it's 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 it his his kind of like judgment of 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 the like because he he's like oh yeah women is fine and like um, and uh, you know, gambling gam- fine gambling yeah. and all of these sorts of things none of those things ruin people's lives um, 
Well, I mean, this is the thing where, like, that's that's the sense of nostalgia and romance there, where it really, like, when I used to watch this as a kid, I used to think, like, that is the film making a position of having Vito seem like a nice guy by comparison. It's like, he's the yeah. good mobster. He's the, ma- the one you can root everything for. Everything would have been fine if the mafia had just not gotten involved in drugs. Yeah, it's it's like it's like when you watch like Clint Eastwood's The Mule, and you're like, yeah, man, if if the Colombian cartels were still run by people like I don't know Andy Garcia, man, those were the days when you could have like a threesome with two women young enough to be your granddaughter, and you just smuggle drugs across the border. But whenever since the young guns took over, man, the cartel's not what it used to be. Um, but like that that's kind of what I I used to wonder about it but then I I did some research and like it turns out that there actually is some basis for that in mob history which is is well, quite yeah, interesting the, the, and you see that kind of like um represented a lot in mob uh movies and television shows afterwards like in goodfellas and in the sopranos like the the the, the main uh, mistake that people make is getting pinched for drugs yeah like they get away with so many other things. Um, that was Angelo Bruno, like the guy. And again, so much of the history of the Godfather is the history of the Irishman. The character played by Harvey Keitel um, in in the Irishman. He was famously against the drug trade, and like his reason was the reasons that Vito Corleone gives, which is like it's a lot harder to bribe upstanding politicians and policemen to look the other way when you're doing drugs. It's also a lot easier to flip informants when they're caught on drug charges. Um, so that's why you should keep your nose out. And he was blown up in a car um, for that um, because his associates wanted to run drugs. When so again, it's you have you have to assume that there has to be a, some degree of moral equivalence going on within the mob for them to do what they do. Oh, dear, oh dear, God love. But him. but like and okay, and one more thing then, or at least just one more thing in my notes, I kind of want to talk about. I know we've been going for a while, and I apologize for that's that. That's all right. The movie does too. Ultimately, if they did, if they didn't do it, another mafia would have. Yeah, you yeah. know, if it's it hadn't market. been them, like, and if they had stayed out of drugs, like, they are, are they going to? But well, that's the Tom Hagen argument. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, like, say, if none of the five families take it up, or are the Irish or the Russians or the Colombians or or like all all of these different kind of um, uh, mafias or the the kind of Meyer Lanskys and the Bugsy Seagulls are, are they also going to stay out of this kind of um... there's money to be made no chance Yeah, you end up with an escalation there it's inevitable and then the old gets replaced and all this sort of stuff um, but I I do think there's an interesting and again it's it's kind of interesting and watching rewatching the movie I found this interesting as well how much of the first hour of the movie is spent on and again, it's called The Godfather, so maybe this shouldn't be a surprise, but on that kind of Al Martino subplot, um, yeah. on the idea of um, Tom Hagen going to... Um, cool as a cucumber. Yeah, going to Hollywood and confronting Jack Waltz, the Hollywood film producer, and basically saying, you need to let this guy appear in the movie. And like, it's amazing that like when, you, when you've watched the movie several times that plot thread doesn't necessarily set up a lot in terms of plot or story. As Phil said, it's a lot more about characters and themes. But I do like the idea that immediately from the outset, you have this juxtaposition of gangsters and Hollywood. This idea of... And again, you know, we mentioned the film's treatment of female characters and stuff like that. I Again, something that has aged 
rather astutely and uncomfortably that moment where Jack yeah. Waltz is like, there's like, he, you know, she was gonna be a big star. And just to show you that I'm not a bad guy and I got a bit of heart and I'm a good person underneath it all. She was the finest piece of ass I ever had, and I had them all over the world. So don't think I'm a scumbag who takes advantage of women. Um, like, again, uh, uh, something that watches slightly differently now than it would have five years ago. Um, but you do have how much of that movie's kind of spent with the juxtaposition of these Hollywood types who think they're tough, uh, and these Hollywood types who think they're, you know, in control and hold power, with the actual mob, which is kind of, again, interesting in the context of this being a movie made by, as we point out, a filmmaker who like came up through film studies and who is very much in love with cinema and its history. Mm. Um, and also there's a just a, a little trivia point, because this is usually my thing in these things. Uh, but um, I mean, Coppola was an kind of unproven uh, entity as a director when he came to this. You know, a few flops was about the height of his calling card. But he did show off in one sense in Waltz's house. You can see an Oscar on the in his one of his display cabinets, which, of course, was Coppola's own Oscar for uh, writing the script for Patton. Yes, which helped him keep his job, which is exactly. quite nice. Like that was a friend. Yeah. And like again and again, I, I love the fact that this is one of the things where like the Godfather has replaced real history, where, you know, the Frank Sinatra was apparently horrified by the book. And by the character I John can't Conte. imagine why. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I don't know why. There's no real... I can't see any point of overlap between the fictional singer Johnny Fontaine, who has these really close ties to organized crime, and the non-fictional was... singer Frank Sinatra. Frank who Sinatra is... is a composite character of, um, <laughs> of Santino and, uh, and Johnny Fontaine. <laughs> Uh, they don't spend as much time on Frank Sinatra's massive slong, but they, they do come back to it, I think. Um, and it's kind of interesting how that story has replaced the reality like in Hollywood urban legend, where like you ask many people today how Frank Sinatra got the role in From Here to Eternity, and they'll tell you stories about horse's head in the beds of executives. And when in reality, that's much more mundane. Apparently, it was Frank Sinatra's then-wife, Ava Gardner, apparently applied social pressure to Columbia Studios' head honcho, who we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Harry Cohn, his wife, in order to force Sinatra to get the role. But that's since been supplanted uh, and replaced. And kind of, you know, you have The Godfather almost replacing reality, rewriting reality. And kind of, as we mentioned already, you have things like, you know, the... The mobsters who are like emulating the Godfather, like modern mafia culture looks like the Godfather, not because the Godfather captured uh, mafia life, but because, you know, mobsters really like the Godfather and decided to start doing things like kissing each other's rings, uh, metaphorically, that is. But like apparently, apparently uh, like Sinatra and again, Sinatra went through the stage of like wanting to murder Puzo, apparently, uh, and like trying to stop the film being prove. made. <laughs> yeah that, that'll do it um, yeah. um and then like wanting to play the role of vito corleone um I, for about half an hour as fa as great a scene as it is i still don't quite understand the logistics like how did the man not notice that somebody had put a horse's head in his bed and slept right through it answers on a postcard please you just have one of those um rubber little whacking things Whenever he wakes up, it's like smack, <laughs> bang on the head, like a cosh, yeah, yeah. bam. Uh, yeah, or, you, or you slip something in his drink. Best yeah. before uh, date, rehypnol. Uh, yeah. 
But I, I again, again, an interesting theme that runs through the three movies and I think like makes the Hollywood sequence that started the first one make more sense is this juxtaposition of organized crime and the family uh, with these other institutions. So in the second one, it's obviously with politicians where you have, you know, their involvement in politics, the Senate hearings, the, the character yeah. um, as well of the, is it the congressman or the senator? And then you have obviously like in the third one, it's the like the... It's the church and the back. And by the way, and we'll come back to this when we talk about The Godfather Part 3, apparently the plot of Godfather Part 3 came from Charlie Bloodhorn, the head of Paramount Pictures, just talking casually uh, with Francis Ford Coppola about how he laundered his money through the Vatican Bank. Um, <laughs> and it was like, yeah, boom, it's in the movie. Um, this is kind of great. Um, and Godfather Part 3 goes out with a dedication to Charlie Bloodhorn as well, which I quite like. Um um, speaking of which, um, one thing you notice uh, throughout uh, Godfather Parts 1 and 2, um, Michael is constantly drinking water. Constantly. Which might give a suggestion as to what might befall him in 3. Namely, oh. the old diabetes. Interesting. Um, and then just finally, one more thing to note, because again, I think it's just worth acknowledging the music, the soundtrack. We talked about how important oh, yeah. sound effects are to them, but the the iconic like soundtrack, the Godfather waltz and stuff. And again, this is one of those things with Hollywood where like the studio and apparently Evans wanted like a Henry Mancini oh, uh, soundtrack to make this sound hip and cool for the kids. Uh, but instead, it's actually Nino Rota's uh score which is apparently ineligible for the academy awards because it was found that he recycled the love theme uh from the 1958 italian movie fortunella fortunella yeah yeah um pity because of course it's uh, uh the, as soon as you hear the score um it's synonymous with the movie it's as much a part of it as as cannoli yeah it, most notably people remember the uh the leitmotif uh, speak softly love the godfather waltz um it's yeah it's as much a part of it as the uh, as the lighting like beautiful score by road absolutely beautiful um i'm normally the score guy on this but it's just it's such a, a beautiful beautiful score it seems to speak for itself i was listening to it before we started recording just to kind of get myself uh, g'd up but like the the end scene while you were waiting in the lobby during the opening credit sequence of the podcast just waiting to shut you two in a revolving <laughs> door and just blast you. um i love the incident our listeners have all had that thought um yeah. well you know you bring it on yourselves i um no love you um <laughs> Even love the incidental music, like just the songs at the um, during the wedding. Um, well, apparently improvised. Like those are apparently improv. Like apparently, like he just served up wine and told them to act like they were at a wedding. Yeah, and then they just you know sing sang songs new. So that's why you get the the old guy coming up to the mic and then suddenly che la luna yeah. in the mezzo del mare, mamma mia, me dare. Um, which of course <laughs> more famously was recorded as Zuma Zuma by Lumi Prima, but. Uh, um yeah oh it's it's just it contributes just to that atmosphere and if there's one word that can readily define uh godfather it's it's atmosphere it's atmospheric you know you can i think i think evans achieved his aim of wanting you to smell the spaghetti or the oranges uh orange is a prevalent color of death throughout the film and oranges are synonymous with this the don is carrying them when he's shot um they're on the uh, table with barzini Tessio eats one at a wedding. Yep. I, yep. I, I watched it over again, the uh, Santino uh, getting murdered. I was like, where is the orange? <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to find, find it. Find the orange. Yeah, but yeah. 
Um, apparently um that was accidental at least in the first film they only realized when they were cutting the film together that the oranges came to symbolize death although they did kind of lean into it i think in the sequel and in the third film as well because they realized that that imagery kind of worked and they could just kind of go with it Uh, which is kind of nice it's a happy accident which kind of fits a bit with kind of the recurring motif of behind the scenes stories about the making of the godfather and just just one more thing when we get to like talking about the the end of my notes and i promise this is one of the last things we're going to talk about But obviously we mentioned the film had a very troubled gestation period. Um, It had a wonderfully charming shoot. Everybody had great fun. No, uh, everybody hated each other and the film almost almost fell apart. But you did have this, uh, the post-production on The Godfather was also notoriously troubled because Coppola had his footage and was told by Paramount that they would not release a movie that was longer than two hours and six minutes. Oops. So he had to cut all his footage down to reach that runtime. And then you have the famous story, I think Andrew's mentioned it before in the podcast, of Bob Evans going, you know, I told you to bring me an epic. And so you had this epic battle taking place behind the scenes between Coppola and Evans on post-production on The Godfather. And Evans here asserts authorship of the movie. Apparently he was on a stretcher because at this stage he was beginning to fully succumb to his cocaine addiction. He'd fallen over apparently during a tennis match and broken his wrist, strained his back, and therefore had to edit The Godfather or oversee the editing of The Godfather from a stretcher. But you have this question then of who's in charge and who kind of made the movie, where Evans says, look, the movie that Coppola put together was not great. It was not a masterpiece. It was my vision that kind of guided him in post-production to make the movie that was released in theaters, and it belongs as much to me as it does to Coppola. And Coppola kind of fires back, and there's all these hosts of kind of memos and letters and articles sniping at one another across the 50 years of history since The Godfather, passive-aggressively asserting authorship and dismissing the other. You have Coppola saying, no, all Evans did was just tell me to put back in all the stuff Paramount made me take out. He doesn't get to call himself the author here. And then you have... Al Ruddy, the man who actually won the Oscar for the movie, sitting in the middle and seeming like a nice guy, saying, I think it's a bit of both. Francis obviously had a masterpiece somewhere in him, and Bob Evans was the man who encouraged him to not only follow his instincts, but also to let moments play even longer than Coppola had in his original assembly cut of the movie. And as a result, the the resulting movie is a masterpiece, and they should both be very proud of their work on it. And again, it's just kind of interesting on this podcast when we do seasons dedicated to directors. We did it quite a bit when we talked about Martin Scorsese. We did it quite a bit when we talked about Spielberg's Indiana Jones. But the idea of authorship and authorship and the idea that film really is a collaborative medium and it's a bunch of people working together towards a common aim. And we do tend to fetishize the director. And I mean, you know, on this podcast, we do because we group our movies by director rather than by lead actor rather than by writer rather than by era occasionally by franchise but often by director and it's kind of interesting that the godfather one of the cornerstones of the new hollywood movement one of the films that really solidified this this auteur driven moment in hollywood arguably has dozens of parents all right and then just finally darren says promising this will really be the last finally um But you have things like the distribution of it, which is where The Godfather, arguably responsible for inventing the modern blockbuster uh, in terms of distribution. Like you can't understate this, actually, because, um, okay, most people know that credit Jaws as being the first blockbuster. But in order for it to achieve that, The Godfather actually laid the tracks for for how films would come to be distributed. Um, 
Up until The Godfather's release, films were generally released in, in waves, in runs. So, you know, main theatre in a given area would get the first run and that and then once that was done, it would move on to smaller theaters. The, the print would run. cycle through, and, and yeah. exactly the problem and it would tour with that, the country. But the problem in that sense, especially for studios, was that it wouldn't make mo- it wasn't a money maker because your first run, you don't know how long it was going to last. So Frankie Blondes, the president of Paramount, um, he got a distribution in theaters changed. He they basically dispensed with the idea of first, second, third runs and just got it out as wide as possible first. Um, so it premiered, the film premiered in New York, but it opened unheard of at the time on over 300 screens. Yeah. And automatically with that, plus, um, Yablans may, may managing to negotiate better splits between, uh, the studio yeah. and the theatrical distributor distributors. He managed to get, he managed to get the split like up to 90, 10 in favor yeah. of the studio. And he also got the distributors to pay their money up front. Those decisions taken together completely reversed Paramount's fortunes. And it ensured that The Godfather would become the most profitable motion picture and release. It set a record. Um, what, 250 million at the time? Uh, like that's, that was absolutely ridiculous money. Despite its OR rating, it became the highest grossing picture since The Sound of Music and adjusted for inflation is today the second highest grossing OR rated movie ever behind only The Exorcist. Now, I mean, to to modern ears, that's nuts. I mean, R rated, nearly three hours long, violent, talky, but it did it. It absolutely did it. And this just goes to show you why The Godfather has the influence it has because it did change at least some rules. I think, yeah, Coppola wanted to, you know, play classical in the style of the film, but the way that the film actually got to its audience was, it was remarkable. And it did really pave the way for films like Jaws, like Star Wars, to become what we now know as blockbusters. Um, and again, like, just to, to give a sense of Frank Yablin's, I kind of, just a couple of anecdotes because I love these stories. Oh, yeah. uh, finally, finally. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew is already zonked out. Andrew's being carried out in a stretcher. Um, weighed like, down. Yeah, way, way down. But um, like, <laughs> Yablins apparently was on tour and was on vacation in Corsica and checked out the local movie house. He was pleased to see that Love Story was playing, but appalled to learn that admission was a mere three francs. On the spot, he forced the astonished house manager to up the price to four francs a ticket. Apparently on Christmas Day 1972, he tongue-lashed the owner of a Washington, D.C. theatre where The Godfather was playing just after the poor man had been released from an intensive care unit following a heart attack. The theatre owner's offence, undercharging the public by $2 a ticket. All right. Having said that, that is finally <laughs> anything we want to say. Uh, Andrew, Phil, anything that we haven't discussed already? Anything jumping out of you about the movie? Anything you want to get out there that we haven't mentioned before? Just last chance. What's everyone's favorite Godfather reference? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I do like um, "Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli." Um, how about you, Darren? Uh, when you say reference, you mean things that reference the Godfather, or uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, so, yeah, sorry. sorry. I should, I should have, I should make it clear. So, like, you know, it's so well known; it appears yeah, he, in reference he to some of the other. 
in so many other mediums. So, what's your favorite? No, I I do remember something. Um, I think it was um, was it on Channel Four or something, or was it was was it one of the Sky channels where they they would redo movies like they they did a Tom Panic, but that they did a um, <laughs> a, a a Godfather but with thumbs. <laughs> and, um, of course they did. Um, and there was a, a there was a, 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 a very good kind of a joke where they were like escalating um where they 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 go out to um to LA to see the executive and he has this whole like menagerie with like <laughs> <laughs> all these oh, different animals. Uh, a- animals and it takes like um uh, days and days yeah to like he did he doesn't get the message when it's the horse so it just like <laughs> progresses to like larger and larger where it's like a giraffe <laughs> in, in, in his bed and he makes that point he's like how am I sleeping so soundly <laughs> <laughs> oh that's excellent that's good I really don't have one to kind of follow that with. I'm just a big fan of when things are clearly trying to be the Godfather Part Two of things. So, for it's example, the like God Tom, I think the ah. hang. Remember, like movies, are, they always call themselves Part Two. That sense of part we've had, and recently we've had a Quiet Place Part Two, Souvenir Part Two. Of all things, the Souvenir. Um, Oh, I remember the Hangover Part Two. Good lord, that was a. But I'm point. thinking, I'm thinking more particularly like of Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, which literally takes the plot of the Godfather Part Two and like runs it, runs it through. Version. So you you have this flashback to how Meryl Streep came to run the hotel that she runs in Greece, juxtaposed with her daughter Amanda Seyfried running the same hotel in Greece. <laughs> but it's an ABBA jukebox musical. It's kind of amazing, and I also kind of just like it when things that are like clearly not as good as the godfather are just like let's just do that thing again so like the final season of boardwalk empire has an entire subplot set in cuba coming up to the revolution (laughs) or like the netflix series luke cage which is not very good indeed has its like second season as a superhero version of like the godfather part two and it's like yeah i can kind of kind of get on board with that um i do also just love bad marlon brando impersonations so you know it's got that going for it and i'm amazed Um, we haven't done more in this podcast what what about your? Let's make the podcast longer. We can hit the full three hours. Phil, what about yourself? What's your your go to Godfather? Right? Uh, it's probably the Seinfeld episode, The Briss, where uh, after Jerry balks at being a Godfather to a baby who's about to have a Briss, and uh, the parents ask Kramer and said, "Don't ever take sides against the family, Jerry." <laughs> and it ends with. Uh, Kramer and the parents of the baby standing in a doorway and closing it on Jerry and Elaine, a la the ending of The Godfather. <laughs> nice. All right. Uh, Andrew, anything you want to add or are we about done? No, no, no. I think that's it. I All do right, like perfect. good fetters. But that's, that's a different kind of... That's Yeah, that's... Uh, yeah though, uh, the God, though the God pigeon is clearly based on Brando. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. The God pigeon says... It's the God Pigeon. I will also shout out the entirety of The Irishman, which feels like very much like Scorsese doing an extended homage to The Godfather, right down to borrowing the ending of Godfather Part Um, (laughs) 3. 
or the sorry the, the coda of godfather part three all right so what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something for listeners something you were enjoying at the moment it be something related to the podcast we just had something unrelated whatever is bringing you joy in these troubled times so to give phil a chance to think about it i'm gonna ask andrew to go first so i think for maybe the fourth time um i've watched the the sopranos kind of pretty much from beginning to end um basically the my fiance patrina was watching it for the first time so i was kind ah. of coming in most evenings kind of uh, watching an episode and we just watched the final episode last night um, and f- final episode um comments so I, as this is a spoiler for all things, yeah. um, I um, I liked it because it's 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 um, it's from uh, the final kind of shot is from Tony's perspective, you know. Yeah. Mm. That it's it's um, he is uh, dead, so there's like there's there's nothingness, um, and that it does. Um, uh, because of course, like the shot is going to be him looking at his daughter, but he can't see his daughter because he he's dead. He's ceased. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I I I I I quite enjoyed it, but I also like the kind of ambiguity of it. That if you that if you want to kind of um, believe that um, uh, that he lived or that he's not. Yeah. Dead. That the that the show stops before he gets shot. Say. Yeah. Um, I. Yeah, I mean, again, not to open up another hour-long discussion of the ending of The Sopranos. I, I really like that ending. Only an large, hour, in large part because, like, it suggests that, like, it doesn't matter whether he's dead or not; he's incapable of change, which is basically being the same as being dead. Like the thing I rewatching The Sopranos recently, I really loved the sixth season, and particularly the first half of the sixth season, which is a point that I know a lot of people hate, but it's a point where all the characters are presented with the possibility of real and meaningful change in their lives. Camilla has it. She goes to Paris. Tony has it repeatedly. Like um, you Eugene, have... even, like, yeah. people like that, and Vito. And... Yeah. yeah. They yeah. all they, have they're... the potential. It's They're they... at the point where Michael is so... at the beginning of The Godfather. Yeah. They have the potential yeah. to get out, or to at least to yeah. improve their lot. And they Chris. choose... Not... Yeah. Yeah, Chris. Chris most obviously in Hollywood. Like, everybody has the chance in that sixth season to go, I am making a change. It's difficult and it's hard and it's part of being a human being, but I am capable of growth and therefore my story deserves to continue because it can, you know, deserves to be told because there's actually something happening in it. it and I love that, that the ending of The Sopranos is like, no, these characters are so stuck in their ways. They are incapable of change. They are it, not alive in any meaningful, substantive way. They might as yeah. well be dead. I think, and I several think it, of them are. It was yeah, Phil's apparently. mention as well of Peter Bogdanovich um, earlier in the podcast. And also while I was watching this, um, The Godfather, I was looking at the, the baker and uh, it reminded me of John Ventimiglia's hand acting, um, <laughs> which, uh, oh, oh, <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, sorry, uh, listeners can't see our hand acting. But, but it, it is it is very, very good hand acting. And look, by the way, while we are covering um, The Sopranos or while we're talking about The Sopranos, Again, I don't know if we'll be able to cover this. I don't know if we'll if like this will get out in time. Let me just check the dates on this. Oh, hey, 
Hey, Darren says, attracting the attention of the Italian Anti-Defamation League. We will actually, fine, Andrew mentioned it. We're going to give a shout out to it. He's got, I'm sure he'll pay us. He seems like an upstanding citizen. Vito's. Welcome to Vito's, a two-night-only restaurant run by Joseph Ganascoli, a.k.a. Vito from The Sopranos. It's being run in the Black Pits, Dublin, Ireland, the world, uh, on the 20th of April and the 21st of April, 2022. Hen's teeth will be transformed into an Italian trattoria, just like Mama did, by Sopranos legend Joe Ganascoli on the 20th and and 20th. You and I, possibly Phil, will be busy on certainly on, <laughs> on the twenty first um, of, of 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 April. Uh, we'll, I mean, we'll, 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 I think um, depending I on mean, whether we... you're staying in in Monaghan uh, that night, Phil, the, uh, before the big day. Yeah, um, we we there may be issues there. There's a clash. There um, might be people who who don't go to my wedding because they're at a pop up restaurant. <laughs> people run, run, by, run by Vito from my the only Sopranos. question is: Is Joe Ganascoli going to show up in the leather hat and the vest? I could get a cameo. He's on cameo. Yeah. Oh, he um, is. Yeah, yeah. The the um. I, I also want to recommend Belfast. By the way, that's a, it's a, a, a movie I saw during the weekend. Um, I thought it was terrific. Oh, sorry, sorry to drag it back to The Sopranos, but like, just to be clear, you could have a three-course meal, including Joe's specialty cheese meal carbonala and an after-dinner talk for just €75. Euro. The modest price of €75. Euro. Sorry. So Belfast, you enjoyed Belfast. <laughs> I did, I did, I did. I thought it was, I, um, I thought it was very good. And, um, um, yeah, it, 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 um, I, I don't know it, how how much I kind of want to say about it. I, I think people people ought to watch it. Are you um, saying there's a risk of mice appear on a certain list at some point? You may need to talk about it. No, no, <laughs> okay, no, fair, probably no. not. No, okay, just checking. And Phil, what about yourself? What would you recommend for this? What are you enjoying at the moment? Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm going to mention three things, if I may. Uh, first of all, is something that I've mentioned a couple of times, but no, four, it- Phil. That's the rule. Four. <laughs> damn you. Damn you, Moody. Uh, first of all, um, I've mentioned a few times during the podcast, it's Easy Riders Raging Bulls by Peter Biskind. It's not only the best film about the uh, filmmaking that was happening in Hollywood uh, around the time The Godfather was made, including The Godfather, of course, um, but it, it just charts that period between 1969 when Easy Riders came out and up to the early 1980s and the release of Raging Bull and the rise of the likes of the movie Bratz and several other filmmakers around that time. And it's it's not only the best book about that period, it's one of the best books about the film industry in general. It's immensely readable and much like The Godfather, full of a, a whole array of colourful characters and uh, it's just unputdownable dish. It's a, a magnificent book. Uh, secondly, I just want to echo uh, Andrew's shout out to The Sopranos, which I rewatched about s- six months ago. And um, it's it is one of the greats. Like there's no escaping it just as a piece of storytelling on, in television. There's little to match it. Absolute glorious. Um, if you want to see a bunch of characters who do take The Godfather as that rise a great rise of a hero story um yeah this is a good cautionary tale in that regard yeah don't don't follow these guys don't keep quoting Pacino going and they pull me back in 
poor Silvio Dante. He never learned. It didn't do him any good. I love the sequence in the second season where before the show goes to Italy to do its homage to Godfather Part 2, Paulie makes them all watch the Godfather Part 2. <laughs> Which is As the it, kind of thing that would be annoying in a lesser show, but I'm kind of like, I love you. Yeah, it's like, it's so, it's self-aware, but not painfully so. Like, you're invited to laugh at these characters for idolizing it so much. Um, <laughs> and when they go to Italy, one of my favorite moments is just poor Paulie sat there at a cafe trying to strike <laughs> up conversation. Commendatore, cocksucker. Um, <laughs> and... It also, in The Sopranos, we get a cameo a number of times from the already mentioned and late lamented Peter Bogdanovich as Dr. Kupferberg. Yes, uh, so that's, I wa- uh, that's what I was thinking. Hell yeah. yeah, so I want to give a shout out to what is still probably his greatest work and one of my personal favorite films, The Last Picture Show, which is another... Uh, another haunted piece of nostalgia set around a small town in Texas, which is populated more by tumbleweeds and dust than it is by people, really, as told through uh, the eyes of a number of its uh, of its youth. And it is appealing to uh, uh, old ways of life clashing with the new and ultimately what happens when you let one subsume the other it's tragic and it's beautiful and um like the godfather it's fascinating to see some young some young actors before they grew up into names we recognize so sybil shepherd jeff bridges um it's it's beautiful it's absolutely beautiful and i recommend anybody to watch it Right. And uh, I thought I was going to be the clever one who'd recommend The Sopranos. So I guess we'll make that three recommendations to complete the set. Um, And and I I know talking about a movie about the mob, who would have thought The Sopranos would come up as a point of reference? Um, And I will actually just because this is, uh, well, first of all, because this podcast is happening a bit quicker than I expected it to. A couple of shout outs to the sources uh, for these three episodes or five episodes that we're going to do when we do like, you know, Apocalypse Now and when we definitely do the conversation. Um, Things like Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli, uh, which is by Mark Seal. It was a book published last year adapting his Vanity Fair article. Um, It's a fantastic resource. I devoured it over the weekend. Uh, If you want something more classical to take a look at the whole trilogy, uh, I would recommend The Godfather Legacy, the untold story of the making of the classic Godfather trilogy by Harlan Lebo. I would also recommend uh, The Godfather Notebook uh, by Francis Ford Coppola, in which you can see his annotated version of the original Godfather novel, where he writes down his thoughts, kind of what he's doing when each scene, what he recognizes the heart and what are potential pitfalls. That's also very, very worth reading. And as Phil pointed out, I would also recommend uh, Easy Riders uh, and Lazy... Wait, Easy Riders, Lazy, Raging Bulls, sorry, apologies, Lazy Bulls are different things. Uh, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, uh, which was a kind of a source, obviously, when we were talking about Scorsese during the summer of Scorsese, and also when we were talking about any other 70s movies as well. So like when we talked about Sorcerer, it was a source there as well. So I would recommend all of those uh, sources as well. And because this is going out relatively uh, contemporary, uh, there's a new TV show called Severance uh, that is on Apple TV, which may be of interest to Andrew because it stars, and I've forgotten his name, the uh, other brother from Step Brothers, Adam. Is it Adam? What's his name? Adam Scott. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's kind of it's a, kind of a high-concept thriller. Uh, it's on Apple TV. Uh, it's launching, I think it launched a couple of weeks ago now, but you can catch up. It's well worth that. I would wholeheartedly recommend that in terms of contemporary references. All right. So, Phil, where can we find you? Watch up to what you're doing? Where you at? I'm here. 
And that's all we could ask, Phil. That's all we could ask. You can find me on Letterboxd, Philip Bagnall, B-A-G-N-A-L-L. Um, I, give, I give various ramblings there. <laughs> I, and, you'll, and you'll see, I watch some good stuff and I watch some shite. Yeah, I mean, I was astonished to hear you describe Venom, Let There Be Carnage as a cinematic masterpiece and one of the great American masterpieces of the past decade. But I, didn't I think go it's that fair. Far, but listen, I, I stand by summation, my summation of that. It's uh, like daft as a brush, gay as a window, funny as a that's uh, kind of brilliant. Um, all right. And thank you very much, Phil, as well, for stepping in at short notice, actually. We do really, really appreciate it. Not um, as, hey, I, 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 was a, I was caught a bit short, uh, but listen. It's the Godfather. Nope, we're, we're not. Who, who could possibly pass it up? The only thing about this podcast that's short. Unlike Sonny's. Sh- anyway, sorry. <laughs> All right. We'll be back next week where one of two things is going to happen. Either Matt Reeves, the Batman, will have entered the 250, in which case we'll be going a special this just in episode. Or we'll be talking about The Godfather Part 2. The wonderful Brian Lloyd, the fantastic Deirdre Malumbi, will be joining us from entertainment.ie for that conversation. So check in. Check out our Twitter. See what we're doing next week. Until then, leave the gun. Take the cannoli. Thank you so much, Phil. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, everyone.